Hello and welcome to another edition of the Capiche Filmcast. Uh, Stephen Barry here, joined by my Bond aficionados for No Time to Die. The film that took, well, I don't know, was it five years? Yeah, six years really by the time it came out. It was this year, 2021. Uh, the pandemic was the final uh, delay for the film and we've seen it and our initial plan to do a, a discussion uh, immediately after it never actually happened. So we've now had all the time to re-watch it and we're going to do a, another watch today and, uh, you know, go into spoilerific detail. But before we do all that, let's just see how we are. It is actually a full year to the day since the final podcast we did the actual ranking episodes i checked the files it was seriously the 27th of december was the last day we did it so yes it's taking me that long to edit them they're still to be edited i am sorry uh yep you've just heard the voice of steve mccall how are you steve thank you uh yeah very good afternoon to you all it feels really good to say that i am surprisingly sprightly thank you very much yep you sound you sound you know, sprightly for someone who's probably got what is it a one-year-old kicking about? Is that is that he one-year-old? Is it, no, he can't be that yet, is he? Nine and a half months, Nine coming up to ten months now. Nice. So the amount of sleep I've had this year is probably about the same as that I've had in an average month. Wow. So yeah, fueled by caffeine, but um, <laughs> uh, yeah, weirdly enough, about a kilo and a half lighter than I was before he was born because of the amount of running and lifting and walking that you do with a wee one. So ah. turns out it's actually quite healthy for you it's just exhausting <laughs> yes yeah that's that's uh, i can imagine and of course francis murphy is here yo 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 for a moment i was like is he here uh how are you fran <laughs> i'm good i'm good uh yeah uh quite excited to be back <laughs> after exactly one year <laughs> You said that so lethargically. I'm quite excited <laughs> to be back. Please welcome Andy let's, Murray. Let's do take two. Okay, oh, Fran, scene one, go. Oh my God, I can't believe I'm back, guys. What are we going to do? No time to die. Cut, no time cut, to podcast, cut, ladies and gentlemen. Cut, Fran, you've overdone it. Can, I, can we do another take, Fran? Are you ready? Okay, get the cameras <laughs> ready. Take, okay, go. Okay, right. Yo, yo, yo. Um, glad to be here, <laughs> folks. Right, get ready for no time to die. Okay, there's that. Starring Daniel. So fine, another one. We'll, we'll fix it in post, right? Uh, okay, Gordon. We've heard the voice of Commander Webster. How are you, Gordon? Good afternoon, Mister Barry. Um, yeah, had a pretty good Christmas. Now having to self-isolate, mm-hmm. possibly for a wee while, but um, it was it was pretty good up to that point until even in the twenty seventh. Yeah, good good to get a break from work. Um, just finishing my latest. Um, Railway book from our publishers, and that which has been pretty mental recently. And I'm just, I've almost got that in the can, mm. and life will become a bit easier after New Year. Yeah, uh, hopefully. Yep. Yeah, it's been a mad year. Everyone's moved about and things like that, I think, or, or had kids and all sorts. There's a lot going on. Uh, to try and catch up and spend we'd have to spend an entire podcast on all that kind of stuff so we'll probably just have to to more or less move on to the film uh so yes no time to die guys this is uh we've seen it all at least how many times have we seen it twice i've seen it twice uh i've still only seen it once seen it once right and then gordon you've seen it twice uh three i think it's three times i've seen it now okay okay and fran yeah. you've seen it once I've seen it once, yep. Yep. Excellent. And and hopefully we can 
well, we'll have to purchase it on the, I'm guessing Amazon Prime it's on now, isn't it? Hopefully. Did, Gordon, you checked that, didn't you? <laughs> I'm pretty sure it's on Amazon, yeah. It's, it's certainly in Sky Store. Right. Yeah, well. I've got it off Sky Store. So there's a few, there's a few, all good, uh, all good streaming services yeah. are available. Okay, okay, yep. yeah. Yeah, that's good there, Steve. Very, very uh, broadcast minded of you to make sure the disclaimer <laughs> there that uh, we're not just pushing for one, you know. <laughs> Although if Amazon want to give us some freebies for this, please do. <laughs> yeah. Yep. Yeah, uh, yes, please, Amazon. Please, please do it. We have, we have a listener. Um, right. So yes, no time to die, guys. Daniel Craig's final, uh, fifth, the fifth outing, his final outing, and um, I can say from my previous watch that I think it's a bit of a banger to go out on. This is one of the best endings of a Bond's career or Bond's film series career um i think this is a great one we'll go into it obviously but uh yeah i I think critically it seems to have done quite well commercially considering the 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 time it came out and it's done actually quite well as well um i was just checking the box office it's doubled i think um because obviously the budget went way over because of all the delays uh, something like 250 to 301 million it's quoted on Wikipedia uh, you know it's never incorrect and the box office so far is 774 million that's you know decent that's pretty pretty decent and and it'll probably just keep going with I mean it's only just come on to the streaming services and the, the Blu-rays and all this kind of stuff will probably bump it up um, I yeah. suspect it benefited from the fact that nobody had been to the cinema in over a year and it came out just at that perfect time where everyone came out oh my god I want to go to the cinema doesn't matter what's on i want to go and see a film yeah they they got it they timed it quite well it was i mean obviously they had to keep delaying it oh god was it four or five delays it was the one it was the first one to get pushed out when the uh back in those days when we were doing the podcast and we're the moor era and it was like the news were coming through and the pandemic was just a kind of hushed thing and then suddenly bond pushed it out that was the first big one to move um so yeah it was uh quite the journey um and but yeah as a as a film we'll go into it um but let's gordon are you how do you feel about discussing the setup <laughs> for this film do you feel i know this is one that you're we're probably all in the same boat we've not seen yeah. as much but you'd, how do you feel about uh doing the, the, the usual kind of basic setup for this or do you i'll want... have a stab at it yeah i guess um just to keep it simple at the end of spectre bond's seemingly left the secret service him and madeline swan disappeared in his aston martin db5 and we pick up on that um i think a couple years later a year later um bond and madeline are just he's i guess he's enjoying retirement um but they hopefully put their past behind them but it seemingly they can't keep the past behind them and some something happens (laughs) and um Felix Leiter, bon, Bond's old buddy um, from Langley, rocks up and um, he needs Bond's help. Which surprise, surprise, uh, Bond is is he going to get dragged back into the 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 murky world of the Secret Service? And uh, is a is a connection to everything that went on Spectre? We always talk about how the the four or five Craig films are are tied in, and um, it, it seems that that. The kidnap of, of the scientist could could hark back to events of Spectre and before. And that that's about it. Um yeah. Um yep. an interesting film to to um end for 
for Daniel Craig. You remember coming out of the cinema? Um, it's weird because, I mean, I, I think that's three times I've seen out the first time. Um, I didn't quite know what to make of it. There was bits I really loved and there's a bit, bit of a kind of shock factor, just very different um, compared to anything before. Second time I saw it, I just thought, I'm falling in love with this film, really, mm. really starting to dig it. And then the third one, I don't know, starting to notice some flaws a bit more. So the fourth oh, three, wow. which would be today, I, God knows. I don't, I don't know how I'm going to find it. I know, I think I'm still going to be on the positive side, but yeah, it's weird. I really, because of the second viewing, but I just loved it so much. I, I genuinely thought I'm falling in love with this film. There's just something about it. But then, the, so I thought the third one, that would be elevated even more. It's just, it's funny because some Bond films, you um they can they can gradually elevate sometimes they can gradually go down in your rankings it's weird it's weird it's depending what i mean and it's a weird way to watch a film but when i think of certain films they have nearly all of them have some sort of strength to them i mean there's only a couple yeah. i can think of that don't have anything really going for them and so when you watch it looking for those strengths and you kind of enjoy it on that then you get a lot from it but there's little things that are like don't age well or just yeah, have been done well or have dated and all this kind of stuff and this film for me most of it is in the plus side but there's definitely it is not near a perfect film there is some some issues of course we'll get into all of that once we watch it but um yeah i know i know what you mean it's one of those films where it's it's very unbondy i think this is the most unbond film i think i was listening back to our, a bit of our spectre podcast a while ago and we described that as the most unbond film i think that this one is even more, uh, you know, a bit of a departure from what we're used to seeing uh, over the franchise. Um, and more than anything, a, a very divisive film. It's polarizing. That mm-hmm. I would say more than anything, certainly the the actual the Bond fan community, which um, in the last the last couple, few months since it's come out, um, I have listened to quite a few other podcasts because uh, you know it's obviously. Um, we were going to do one and then obviously, you know, with COVID and everything, there's been a, a bit of time in between. So I've listened to a lot of the other opinions on it. Just really, really polarizing. Um, yeah, yeah, I've some, heard the same. The Empire podcast, of all, you know, I've listened to other podcasts, but that's the one I keep mentioning. Uh, they they were very divisive. One loved it, one couldn't stand it, and there was a couple kind of in the middle. Like it was a, you know, I think the length of the film. We've not mentioned that. That's one of the things that is. This is a long. This is the longest Bond film by a quite a stretch. Uh, yeah, it's nearly three hours. It's like two hours forty five minutes or something. Um, that is it, that can be enough sometimes for people. That might be a bit too much time. Um, I don't mind it. I think it earns most of it. That, but that's uh, we'll we'll get into that. I think there's not much more we want to talk about really. Um, just to mention, it's obviously directed uh by Carrie Fukunaga, and he is the first American director apparently of the Bond films. I didn't realize that's the first time they've had that. Um. Danny Boyle was at one point uh, in the production talks, him and his uh, screenwriter, but then left the project around 2017-18 due to creative differences with, I think, the producers. And then that's when uh, Fukunaga came on board. This one also has the usual writers, Neil Purvis, Robert Wade, um, uh, back, but also joined with Phoebe Waller-Bridge. And I think Waller-Bridge's... writing you can see it in this film and i think it's a, a very good thing about it it's for me is one of the strong points um it's not clear who actually but you get the feeling you can sense her kind of kind of 
you know, her, her style a bit in the film. But anyways, that is enough for a preamble. I'm looking forward to this, guys. Uh, oh, Hans Zimmer as well. Look out and for that. And the cast, actually. Yeah. Um, sorry to interrupt you, Steve. I just thought it was worth mentioning that probably this is, I would say with the, the Craig run, this is probably the um, the film with the most, there's been the most recurring cast members that have come back because Ernst Stavro Bofeld is is in it again. Um, obviously, <clears throat> Christoph Waltz for the second time. And Madeline Swan um, is back, not yeah. just a cameo. Yeah. Sado. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Rami Malek uh, playing Safin, of course. Yep. Yeah. I mean, this and... is the thing with Craig's arc, isn't it? Well, again, I feel like this is more for after the film, but there is a, there's an arc. This is the difference between his Bond and most of the other Bonds. The, the stories didn't really connect. This five films feel like there's an arc, there's a story, there's content, continuity. And it has quite emphasizingly ended with this film. Well, probably, I think they'll have to do a reboot. We'll go into that, of course. But uh, it feels like a conclusion. And I, I, I enjoy it for that. But yes, yeah, so there's a lot to look forward to in this film. Uh, and yeah, I'm... I think we we are set and ready to to go and watch it, guys. I'm looking forward to this. No time to die. Well, let's give it the time to watch it at least. All right, we'll be back for spoilerific thoughts on the film. Bye bye. And we are back from having watched No Time to Die. Uh, nearly three hours and that's how did that go guys on our third or second viewing for each of us uh let's start with steve that uh i'd forgotten how much i enjoyed that genuinely that i'm so glad i had that second viewing because that felt almost flawless and it's incredible that it was over the sort of over two and a half hours that it was because my attention span is notoriously awful but i was gripped for that full two and a half hours there wasn't there wasn't really any part of that that felt as though it dragged everything was there was no dead weight in it everything felt necessary there were perhaps moments that were a little slower i'm thinking perhaps the sort of scenes in the norwegian forests felt a little bit on the sort of slow and drawn outside but by that same token, that was essential for moving the film along. So uh, overall, uh, I've got a lot, I think, to say about this, but yeah. I rate this film incredibly highly. It looked fantastic as yeah. well. It just, yeah. the actual cinematography in this, as I'm pretty certain we'll come to, is brilliant. It's just so, so good. Yeah, no, I'm completely with you on that. Fran, what about yourself? Sorry, I had it muted because I'm eating my sandwich. Um, oh. I can come to you last if you prefer. It's okay. Well, if I do, yeah, I'll just do it just now. I think it may be, well, it's definitely one of the best, if not the best, uh, James Bond film ever. And it actually, to me, watching it again, it, it reminded me of conversations we'd had ages ago about um, what would make the perfect ending for Bond and, and the fact that um, Honor Majesty's Secret Service had that, that feeling to it. And it's no surprise that, that music is is there mm-hmm. in this film, um, all the time in the world. That there's that sort of callback to that movie, yeah. because this is it, it. It goes full circle. And another thing I noticed as well, and I've commented on this briefly uh, when I was talking to you, uh, Mr. Barry, um, is that we get to see we we actually for the first time maybe 
since Honor Majesties, we actually see Bond beyond the one-liner and beyond the action and beyond all that. We see James Bond actually having an opinion about yeah. things and expressing feelings about things in this film. Yeah, uh, it happens on a number of different occasions, and it's only it's only because we're seeing it, or it's only because, well, for me personally, I saw it in this film that I realised that Bond was almost always kind of a like a cardboard cutout of a of a character in a lot of the films. Hmm. That he's it's sort of he's an archetype. He is this this thing. Do you know what I mean? And there's nothing wrong with that. Um, but it's really interesting at the very end to get this idea of like seeing Bond as a kind of a protective father figure, or being um, gentle around a child, or do you know what I mean? Or, or 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 kind of dressing down M for things, or having that discussion with the villain at the end. What's his name again? Lucifer um, Safin. Yeah, yeah, Lucifer. Uh huh. Um, Rami Malek it is that plays him, isn't it? Mm-hmm. Um, so. You know, that conversation at the end as well, where Bond is saying, oh, come on, you know. Like, that's the bit that fascinates me about this film. Yeah. Yep. So, yep. I mean, I just, I, I, I will say, watching it again, it did feel as if that you couldn't really, it was like every lesson from every Bond film ever was addressed. Mm-hmm. Okay. Gordon, we'll come to you. Yeah, I'm feeling similar to third film. I've kind of um, digested a lot of that film. Now, once you, I find getting over the first viewing and just realising um, where the producer and the writers wanted to stand with it. Once you've accepted that, I mean, it, it's there's I love the feel of this film. I think there's cert, there's a lot of things that were missing in the last few of Daniel's films. I think they've really amped up that emotional feel. And I, I agree that there's um, there's a lot of Honor Majesty's Secret Service in this. I think the two films, this real feeling of foreboding from the beginning Mm-hmm. And I think there's a you see first first of all of course you've got um lighter dying uh, I don't know if that's kind of a sign of the way, the way the film's heading it's a very emotional score I mean the music's fantastic I I think it's the best musical score at least I think since Tomorrow Never Dies and I, as I said before I, I rang that as one of the very best um I think Hans Zimmer did a magnificent job there's some great acting Leah Sado is is brilliant um. Yeah, I think I think a lot of the things that maybe I wasn't so happy about, and other people weren't so happy about, with with her character and Bond and their relationship, Inspector, you believe it this time is believable. I mean, I mean, it's for story, it's definitely one yeah. one of the better Bond films. Um, again, I mean, most of my, most of my the things I'm not so happy with in, in the final act. I I would describe the film as I'm really really on board the first two thirds of it. Um, but I just like lo- I love the feel of the film. Um, I don't know if certain things like. The colour palette has a lot to do with that. There's a, just a certain feeling, which it's like almost this and all the Secret Service are on a different kind of level to the other Bond films. They both have this feeling that the others don't. The others yeah. are more just escapist fun. Um, but so I, in summary, I would say about No Time to Die, I mean, I really love the getting from A to B, but it's the point B I'm not so sure about. Ah, interesting. Yep. Okay, I can see that. Yeah, I can echo most of the, all the sentiments already expressed. The visually, um, the visual aesthetic of this film is fantastic. Color palette, as you mentioned, Gordon, definitely there is a strong color palette coupled with the strong cinematography, um, is brilliant. And this is something that they've had since, uh, Spectre, I would say. I mean, some of the Bond films, the early ones had some great scenes and great, um, you know, layouts and things like that. And there was some moments, but it, they're not known for being, cinematographically strong like like moving kind of points in cinema but i think specter is where 
sorry, uh, Skyfall is where they actually really, you know, they, they nailed cinematography. And I think it's carried through into this film. And I love it. The music as well. And Billy Eilish's score. Obviously, it came out, like, the way it worked out, coming out before the film was eventually released, like, a year later or something. You got used to it, but hearing it in the context of the film, uh, we'll go into it in more depth, but I, I enjoy that. And also how Hans Zimmer used it within the score. And also the... Uh, the all the time in the world and the sort of themes that that brings with it that song but also the sort of foreboding feeling of honor Majesty's secret service as well in other areas and again with the sort of bond elements mixed in with hans zimmer's kind of style like it was just all meshed really well which is a tough a tough to kind of tight wire to kind of to kind of wrangle through but i, I liked it um yeah action scenes there's few and far between that's not a most action-packed bond film but i think they made the right choice in focusing on character and story and they mostly excel at that and for me that's a good thing and where they have action scenes they're a lot of them are really well really well done there's a bit of john wick-esque action type sequences in the choreography and the sort of third act that i liked and the sort of tight stairwell when he's fighting with is it primo the guy um it's interesting because he's not, he's another one of these few henchmen, isn't he, who's not named in the film, I don't think. I know, I just know read from... online that it's his name. I was like, yeah. I never knew that was his name. But yeah, it's a, it's a lot of great things, and but it isn't perfect. There is things I do think it struggles with. Um, we'll probably, we'll definitely come to them. That's the whole point of this podcast. Um, so, but that is my overall sentiment. I do really enjoy this film. It is. It's probably up there in my top... It's definitely in the top 10 of my Bond, maybe even in my top 5. Um, and it's fighting with Skyfall, maybe maybe even better than Skyfall. But let's focus now. Let's focus like where let's go with the beginning. Uh, how long did we count the pre... Um, was it 25 minutes or something for that pre-title sequence? It's by far the longest in the entire franchise. Um, which I think was can't say I was counting, but yeah, it's definitely it must, the longest. It must be something like twenty-five minutes or half an hour. Because I know that um, you, uh, the world is not enough was the longest before this, I think, and that was about fourteen minutes. Which this one was at least nearly double that, I'm sure. And it had four different sections, I think, if you counted it all. Um, what do we all think of the the pre-titles? I think it's gripping. Mm-hmm. I um... has. The, it almost has the I mean right at the very start in particular it's got the tension and the cinematography of a horror film almost, yes particularly that almost yeah. jump scare when you see Safin with his mask at the window yeah um, which I think it kind of it sets the tone it yeah. kind of sets the tone early and says right this film is different to the other ones it kind of sets that idea in your mind that you shouldn't expect the typical Bond film yeah um, and I think in the long term that works that works quite nicely yeah I loved it. Gordon, what what did you think of that? Well, in that, yeah, I I particularly enjoy the the opening scene in Norway and even some of the more subtle things. I I love the music there. It's like some French singer and I actually was looking it up briefly and I couldn't find it. There's something that just works so well with the young Madeline and her alcoholic mum. And just like you said, Steve, it's like like a horror film. Mm -hmm. Um, The isolation there. In Norway, you know, it's, it is a big change up, and and you know, I'm very much the traditionalist Bond fan, but I've absolutely no problem with that. I do, I do have, I think, how many bullets did uh, Madeline pump into uh, Safin, and yeah. then he just got up. <gasps> um, yeah, the, the, I think the kind of around Safin is where sometimes I have 
I kind of question things. Like it's the fact that you don't see a lot of his face or anything, but you can get a glimpse of him, and he looks about the same as what he does later on in the film, which we have to assume is what nearly twenty years later. Like because what age was she? Maybe eleven at that start bit, and then she's in her late twenties or something, or early thirties. Yeah. So I mean, could we could we put that down to scarring and? I don't know Problems, if, like, if it's yeah the scarring, but also does that toxic, you know that thing whatever he's got going on, does that also de- sort of slow down the aging process? Or something? But the film doesn't go in; it just kind of is like yeah, it's the same guy. Like I say, he looks almost like a corpse. He looks yeah. very very odd. Um, I just to go back to the the pre title, I, I like the I like everything mentioned, but I also quite like the sort of the I'm guessing it was set in the nineties. Or something like that, or the eighties, because there was a yeah. there was a Tamagotchi in there, yeah, yeah, and there yeah, was yeah, yeah. Wallace and yeah. Gromit's on the telly, which is a sort of throw forward to a little bit that comes later on in the film. I read somewhere. Funny that, that. Yeah, I heard that. I can't uh, actually remember who it was. I quite like the the kind of mm. the attention to detail. Yeah, I, I, I thought it would have either been the very late eighties or the nineties, but yeah, that attention to detail of things there, like you know. That's that's I'm a big fan of that in movies. You know, when when they go to a certain period of time, and you can really tell they've paid attention to that. Well, this film travels a few different eras. It's, I suppose it's a three different time periods. It's got that, and then it moves to them, obviously later on, when it's is mm-hmm. present day, but present day after uh, Spectre, and then it moves on again five years from that. Um, well, the the whole Italy scenes. Um, I mean, one thing that I admire there is, and because I did watch one of the extras in the Blu-ray about how they did all the action sequences, and it's mostly real stunt work, man. And after you know, so many films with quite a bit of CGI, some of it glaringly obvious. Um, I think the likes of the it may not have been the most spectacular, but the the motorbike leap was incredible. But I mean, go, if we're going back to more like I, the sort of quieter scenes, um, one thing that we, this is another thing where I mean, certain things are amped up in this film that we didn't really get with, with Daniel Zira. I think, um, I used to like setting the scene, like Bond, you know, having banter with hotel staff, like Bond, Bond and, um, the, the leading female character, like just meeting people in a village, seeing like, it's like what you've seen the likes of the Living Daylights and Few Eyes Only, like, dancing in the streets. So you see Bond and Madeline, they're going up, up to their hotel, and he, he just kind of chews the fat with the, the bag man, with the bellboy, or whoever he is, and he's talking about, or the, who are all these people? Oh, they're burning. I love that. Just, like, setting the scene. We don't get, isn't it, enough of those little character moments in the, yeah. in the, in, in Daniel's era, I think. So that was really nice to see. That really took me back. Just, you know, subtle things like that. It was nice as well seeing him, you know, in a relationship. This is just how he is with, you know, in a serious relationship. You know, uh, it's not just the early days when they first woo, like, you know, he's wooed the 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 the, the lady in the, that film, and then it's maybe a day later and they're sort of together. But this is actually him. They're a bit more settled as a relationship as a couple, which is kind of different already, which is quite interesting. Yeah, they really. I think they really. Um, I think back to. Spectre, and I think Leah Sardou is great in it, but um, I didn't find the romance quite so believable. Like, um, Bond's known her for a few days, and he, he says, I love you, and I thought, I don't know if I really buy into that, but um, they're the relationships right from the off, and this is, is transformed, and you, you really you really believe it, 
Mm-hmm. And um, it means when tragedy does strike later in the film, you do, you, f- you feel that emotion. I, you know, still felt in my, my fourth viewing. Too. Yeah, definitely with you on that. So the pre-titles covers, you know, the, the Norway horror scene, and then it's the Madeline in the, in the water and Bond and her, and they're sort of, as you say, chewing the fat and, and kind of, and then it also moves again. Um, I've lost my train of thought, actually. <laughs> Because it's so long, man. It's, yeah, that was, um, I was trying to go. Was, <laughs> 23 uh, minutes, 47 seconds. I've just looked it up. Yeah, and I think, Steve, you made the good point, though. While I think me and Mr. Barry said coming out of the cinema, that's pretty long, you did make the point that, well, it's a very long film, so it maybe deserves a longer pre-tells. I remember you, Steve, I one of I you guys that, mentioned yeah. that. Yeah. Someone yeah, did it, yeah, but I think proportionally, it, it kind of makes sense. Like... <laughs> Where would you have cut if you wanted to try and make it like the traditional sort of you know five to ten minute pre-title sequence? Where would you have cut? You'd have to have really cut when you know as soon as the the shots fire into the ice, and then it would lead into like the the belly alley, which could be a cool effect. Um, but then but I think yeah. story wise that would suffer. Um, because the the way that the pre-title, I don't know we've not quite reached it yet, but the way the pre-title ends and fades into the title song, yeah, I think, um, I mean, the that that fades or that kind of intro into it, I put on a par with the way that um, the GoldenEye theme starts when the plane mm-hmm. flies off in the building, the uh, building explodes. Yeah. And you get those first few notes, the way that moves in as the train's taking off, Yep. taking off the train sort of leaves the platform and it fades into the title sequence that I don't I, I can't imagine where else in the title sequence that would have worked and also I think you need the build up of it oh caught out there you alright what's happened the build up it was lost the build up and then it just stops Steve you there yeah it may just stop for a few seconds he's froze see if he's put it in the chat well, I can tell you for sure Danger levels got higher. I was just about to say that. <laughs> Turn down danger level. You don't want to mess with the danger wheel. Not sure what to do. If we should just wait. See he's texted on. He's texting on WhatsApp. Uh, Steve McCall has left. We'll just carry on. Right. Okay. So we've just lost Steve temporarily. We'll just continue, guys. Uh, yeah. So the the pre-title sequence. There's so much to unpack, and like you say, uh, it's they've probably done it as best they can. They've told an arc of a story in that 23 minutes that maybe it is best to be within that 23 minutes instead of cut halfway and then trying to kind of force it into the main sort of present present day plot. Um, so I think they've probably done the best. You know, you know I was I was going to say. Actually, you could think of it almost like a like a mini series because, I mean, that's the length of some TV episodes. I know. That actually, thing. you're right. Twenty three minutes and then, and is the classic sort of t- American television show time. Yeah, and and then you've got the the kind of middle kind of mid section of the story, and then the final act. So it's like as you say, three time frames. It's almost like a it's like a kind of a you could watch it in chunks because it's it doesn't it doesn't overly the the, the actual progression of events is linear isn't it so it's not like it switches back and forth and back and forth loads yeah so you could kind of watch it in three chunks if you wanted to yeah no, it's, i think they did well obviously you know if you're expecting the music to kick in just but you know knowing the bond films uh it's 
a little strange the first time watching it. It's like this is just a dialogue scene, but we've already had what seemed like a good pre-titles end like bit. So are they just not going to have the theme song? <laughs> like you sort of question it the first time just because you're expecting it. But once you've watched it before and you kind of know where it's going, it's not as as big a deal and it makes sense within the film. Um, yeah, and and I do overall like it. There's a lot in it. So it's hard to compare it to other ones because it's so epic in comparison to some of them. When you think of some of the other ones, it's been like two scenes or something, and you know this twenty-three minute episode. Um, yeah, with it spans yeah. different time periods and and all sorts and locations. What did you? Th- ah, this is where I was going when I completely lost my train of thought. Um, so the whole plot then with the Vesper kind of callback and the sort of what? What do you think of that? Like. From a logic point of view, I was trying to kind of like, is there a wee bit of stretching of logic to kind of like why would Blofeld? How how did how did we get to that point? And it's that's what lured Bond out from you know Blofeld's plan. This quite elaborate as usual. Um, <clears throat> well, I think I think we we know when you look at the birthday party. Right, I, mean, I know. It's kind of funny to call it a birthday party. It's like a child thing or something. Like you know, going to Burger King for your party. No, 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 we're going to go to Mexico and create this thing, or South America. But um, it's this kind of thing where, like, I think we just kind of accept that um, Blofeld is, like, absolutely, totally um, capable of seeing what people are doing. Like, he's capable of, like, he's, I mean, he's able to see outside of Belmarsh Prison. Do you know what I mean? Like, no matter what, like, he's able to. Yeah. Sorry. I don't don't mind the fact that Spectre are so powerful and Blofeld's powerful and can see all these things you wouldn't expect. But that's what makes it all the more unbelievable later when Spectre are just taken out just like that. But yes. I'll get to that later. I, but that, I'm that's with you. The, I don't, there's, um, also, there's also the idea, sorry, that, that um, like that party, like that, that shows the absurdity of it all. Like, like I mean, all those guys, I mean, it's, it's, it, it was crazy, wasn't it? I mean, it was like, it was like suddenly became Rocky Horror Show or something. Yeah, like all these kind of freakish evil guys everywhere. Do you know what I mean? And like carrying that eye around on the the tray or whatever it was, or the cushion. What was it? A cushion or a tray? I can't remember. <laughs> yeah, it's, I have no idea. I think it was kind of a and, and Blofeld's tray. like like monologue about his own birthday. <laughs> you know, it's my birthday today. You know, he's like the spoiled kid at the party. Like, like oh, you know, so just so- megalomania. So we'll get to that in more detail. We're definitely when Steve's back, but just on the finishing up in the pre-titles, then. So, so Blofeld set up a scenario to lure Bond out to Vesper's kind of whatever that is, um, kind of grave or tombstone or something, a monument. What is it that Bond? Well, I missed it again. What is it that makes him go out there, and why wouldn't he be suspicious? Like, I can't help but think. Bond. Well, it's the CIA, is it not? That sends it out there. Yeah. So that, again, it was. And then, and then yeah. there's the agent that he meets. That that who she played. Who's? Are we? Um, no, no. This is earlier on. That's I'm talking the pre-title sequence. Yeah. Oh, right, so right, I was right, thinking right. ahead to Jamaica there. I. Oh, um, yeah. Give me means, Steve. Though, like, like I, I, why? Yeah. Why? Why wouldn't you be suspicious about this? Like, I just thought that was obvious that some some setup something wasn't quite right with it. It wasn't an everyday occurrence. There's oh, I've got a message. I'll go and see. This old, you know, girlfriend thing. Like, it's like, yeah. come on. I may have missed it again, but was was it, it sounded like it, it was kind of a 
coincidence that they were they were in Matera in Italy, like kind of as a break, and then oh, it happened to be where Vesper was uh-huh, buried. Like or, or is it meant to? Give, I don't know. Is it meant to give you the impression Bond sort of pushed for going out there, knowing at the back of his mind that um the Vesper right, but it would be like me go, going in a a break with somebody as an excuse to visit a Bond location, but not tell well, them until they're yeah. actually there. Which, you know which I mean? kind of makes sense. I'll oh, sorry for I'll let you speak in the face a quick second. Okay. But it's like, I suppose she is suspicious that he is thinking about Vesper, like it's something looking over his shoulder. She references it, I think it's speaking about looking in the past. And so she's kind of trying to get him to talk about that, and he's trying to get things out of her, and she's recollecting about when she was a child and the whole stuff with Safwin, which we'd already just seen. And so they're both keeping secrets from each other, and they're both trying to kind of go with each other, which I quite like. That's a very relationship, a very realistic relationship type thing. You know, in the pre-title sequence of a Bond film, it's very unusual. Um, but I just wasn't quite sure and convinced that it's, uh, they didn't quite convince me as to why Bond would go out there and maybe you're right, Gordon, that's probably what it is. He kind of wanted to go out there himself. But it just seemed very much like, mate, this is a setup. <laughs> like something's going to yeah, happen. But I, yeah. I, think, I think as well, there's there's definitely a sense of, you know, probably Blofeld is just sort of keeping an eye on what, you know, the Spectre are keeping an eye on what Bond is up to. They're probably always headed out there. He's definitely going to go and visit Vesper's grave. Right, yeah. I probably would have thought that because I mean, he's not going to go all the way out there and then not do it. Do you know what I mean? Like he's, if he's, well, there's the chance that he would. But I mean, I think the the, the insinuation is that and we what, knew you would do that. What sets it off again? Like, is it a timer or something? What was it that set off? Um, yeah, I don't really know. I got the sense some <laughs> just convenience sort of proximity <laughs> mine. The old the yeah the old famous well, proximity mines some, again. Actually. Some graveyard like maintenance guy. Was trying <laughs> yeah. to I know exactly. Exactly. Oh, the wind. What if the wind blew the? Is it the card yeah. activated? What if the wind blew the card away? Exactly, like, that just set uh, it off. Or? That's. What I, I kind of was like, okay, a lot of logical <laughs> steps have been missed here to get this really cinematic, cool moment. But when you kind of like reverse engineer it, it's like there's a lot of weird leaps of faith. To be taken. Oh boy, boy, oh boy. He, um, I'll tell you something. Um, Daniel certainly has um his fair share of explosions. To it's it's almost like um some cartoon character that always gets blown up. It's like t- Tom and Jerry always getting blown up, but he just has kind of it's like what George does even out, Bond. Yeah. He then just like brushes his <laughs> yeah. suit and get gets up. But he's he's honestly the, like he gets all these grenades chucked him way in the face. He's just always getting caught in these explosions and he's just walking out of them. It's part Ironic, of maybe, given what happened later, but... Yeah, go. <laughs> yeah, yeah, Spoilers, go explosion, <laughs> Only explosion big enough to yeah. take him out. Like, the, the enemy... Well, it was his own, his own team that killed him. Exactly. As well. Uh, you know, poor, poor old Bond. I mean, my God, what a way to go. Anyway, we'll get to that later, I suppose. Yeah, we'll, we'll move on in a sec. Just to check, Steve, how are you, how are you sounding? Uh, is this any better? Can you hear me? Yeah, that's better, yep. Cool. I have no idea at which point I disappeared. Um, I've got a funny feeling I was halfway through a half-decent point, but... Uh, uh, yeah, I think we'll just move on. Okay, so, obviously, pre-titles, let's go chronologically then, and let's talk about Billie Eilish and the score and the actual titles visually. Um, I, myself, I'll start on this. I uh, really enjoy it. I think, as I've said before at the beginning of this podcast, this song... Uh, really, I mean, I liked it from the off anyway. It didn't rise up straight away to my top, but it's just that kind of like it builds up and it also um, 
I think it fitted this film perfectly. The the theme and the feeling in this song is so good. And you consider this artist as eighteen year old artist who's missed a lot of all of the the Bond franchise. It didn't matter. This she's came in and her brother wrote it and produced it and absolutely nailed it. And I think it's very good. Um, lyrically, it's got a kind of a lovely haunting sentiment to it. And and again, it's Hans Zimmer how he's using the film. What do you guys think about that? I thought I it was incredibly good. Right, I'll go with France. Sorry, first I'll do, start with France. Yeah, we don't all talk. No, I just thought it was. I just thought it was perfect in tone, and and it, you know, and it, it. I don't know. I just thought it was a really, really good song. I mean, I didn't know what to expect from her, mm-hmm. especially given the music she normally does. You know, I mean, it was. You know, I'm not. I'm not like. I, I don't think she's terrible, but I'm also not like the biggest fan, you know, but I, I thought it was really, really good. Yeah. I really, you know, I was really impressed by it. Yeah. Steve? I love it. I absolutely love the song. Um, I just, I like how it does, it's, it almost follows, it's almost like a continuation of the film itself. It, it follows on from the pre-title sequence lyrically and just kind of helps set the story up. It's sort of talk of betrayal and stuff like that. Mm-hmm. It's, it's not, jarring at all it's you know at the bottom end of the scale you've got madonna wailing die another day this has this it links to the film it's been researched it works um it's and it's just i mean musically i love it those strings Mm -hmm. are just glorious the actual titles themselves the sort of artwork it's interesting how the, the song is almost so hypnotic that you don't really, there's nothing about the titles themselves. I think they jump out, they look beautiful, the way that each image kind of merges into another. It's almost kind of one continuous pan out yeah. and kind of everything kind of becomes something else and there's sort of repeating images and stuff like that and it harks back to what you've just seen in the pre-titles and gives you kind of a hint at what's coming up. <laughs> but the way that that song works lyrically as a continuation of the film it goes pre-titles, the lyrics and the titles, and then into the film itself without a break, I think is actually really clever. Yeah, yeah, definitely. Gordon? Yeah, well, now that Steve mentioned it, well, it's in my mind, I do agree. The title sequence is maybe, by this point, Daniel Kleiman, he's been doing them since Goldeneye. This one's maybe a bit by the numbers, but maybe maybe he's trying more to give a... a kind of like what the Honor Majesty's Secret Services ones did, where it's trying to give you a flavour of all the films before, where in that one, of course, it it shows you images of previous characters, and it does that in this. It, I think there's subtle references. There's kind of like a a diver, which I think is a Thunderwall reference. There's the dots from Doctor No at the beginning, but I don't yeah. know, oh, yeah, know did, what relevance they that. have. But, yeah, yeah. Good. I think um, yeah, I think Billy Eilish's song works perfectly well for the film. Um, the interesting more when you listen to the lyrics because I don't think that, to me they weren't they didn't I didn't actually take in the exact words for a while like I, I I googled the words just that and it just when you look at the story it's completely based on the story which is good I mean I mean I would say that the, the song it's maybe a bit too similar to Sam Smith's Spectre song to to really um you know I would have liked something a bit more original but I mean yeah it works perfectly well for the film yeah fair enough fair enough um yeah and I would say the sort of Again, it's the transition from the, the the title sequence into the next scene is one of my favourites. I hadn't noticed it before. It's that kind of like it it circles around the building and then it's, you know, we're in the, the film again and then it's the, the sort of, I don't know what you call them, 
the combat guys as they're scaling up the building and then going into the the kind of chemical weapons or chemical laboratory or whatever. I just thought the mood again was fantastic and the way it looked. That it was it was like the first moment I was like, wow, this is this is something else. This is really great. And they kind of kept doing that. I just I, I really enjoyed that um, aesthetically. This is a, a lovely film to watch. Um, okay. The way it kind of opened up. Mm-hmm. Sorry, at the end of the titles, onto that scene, sort of that opening shot, white shot yeah. from above of London. That again, it felt very familiar and sort of very Bond. I think that shot's probably been used in other Bond films that maybe we haven't quite noticed, but that. The way that that kind of cut to that was sort of the first or white, I should say, to that scene as the first shot mm-hmm. um, yeah. it was quite clever. I think and kind of harking back. Yeah, yeah. Uh, and those combat guys that you mentioned walking up the building, just uh, um, that apparently is the link to in the pre-title sequence when um, young Madeline is watching the wrong trousers i didn't quite manage to see it, but apparently it's the scene from wallace and grove at the wrong trousers where the penguin wearing the wrong trousers is walking up the building no way and then apparently the combat guys are walking <laughs> up or sort of scaling up the side of the building i don't i need to double triple check that but apparently <laughs> that is the sort of bizarre that is such Easter egg a, link that is such a, so, a needless connection it's, <laughs> of all the nods it's in the film, needless, but yeah, it wasn't the one i usually that's a, that's picked amazing. up but yeah it's like Wow, it's attention to detail. You know they don't skimp on this stuff. Um, oh yeah, but yeah, no, it's it's good stuff, right? Let's talk about uh, Craig himself. Let's talk about Daniel Craig and this film, uh, his final film. He said it. Everyone knew this was going to be his final film, and um, they wanted to go out with a bang because he wasn't quite the injuries over the, the his tenure had kind of made him sort of get a bit kind of fed up of the part and all this spe- the, the sort of media speculation I think probably added to it. He never really commented on that. But and I think Spectre having a sort of divide kind of divided critics, I think, was one of those ones where they thought after a couple of years, oh let's let's go round again. Let's do one more and make sure we get it right. And uh for me I think he is again fantastic. He needs to be in this film, he's retired and he's kind of living out this sort of life uh, after the pre-title sequence, obviously, um, that you'd expect Bond to live, I suppose, uh, you know, um, living in exotic lands and just, you know, doing his own thing. But then he, and, uh, through the course of the film, he is battered, bruised. He's in a lot of, uh, you know, action scenes, and he's also got to then carry emotional scenes with the family. Like he has a lot to do in this film, and I think he, I think he does it really well. Uh, Steve, what do you think? I think he's scripted wonderfully. The depth that he's got in this film, I think, is just fantastic. Uh, and yeah, seeing him kind of living out retirements, he's not, he doesn't come across as kind of bitter that he's out of the service or anything like that. He looks, the yeah, way you see him kind of yeah. fishing and in his little villa and driving around whatever. Is it, is it meant to be Jamaica? I'm not 100% sure if it's meant to be the kind of Bond's house island place or if it's kind of harking back to where he started off yeah, but... kind of, that's kind of what it felt to me it was almost like where Fleming wrote the books that kind of that's what inspired the whole thing wasn't yeah. it yeah I got that yeah but it it's when was, you can yeah. see him he's, he's living back to nature you know fishing hunting type and he he seems kind of he seems satisfied it's quite nice to see that but also it helps seeing him 
like that and then watching him being sort of jarringly pulled out of that first obviously by Felix and then by MI6 mm-hmm. um, yeah. but, uh, so that was nice to see but the way that I think throughout the way that they've scripted him and um, there's, I mean there's, there's just there's little subtle hints of humour yes there's one one line up in there and I suspect they threw that in there to kind of give the old uh, Bond fans or the the continuing Bond fans I should say a little something to kind yeah. of go right we, we threw one in there for you there you go it's, have that obviously much later on uh, it's a proper groaner like it's a it's a uh, <laughs> like yeah exactly but by, by no means did they completely overload him or anything or, I mean they they didn't really throw in anything in the way of jokes at all. There was just there was just lines that he said. It was more it was it was his bemusement. That's at times yeah. I think, particularly when particularly around uh, Matilds, mm-hmm. um, that I think is where you see. I think a lot of the humour comes from the fact that you're seeing Bonds. I mean, we've seen Bonds throughout twenty five films in some utterly bizarre situations, but the most sort of mind-bending situation for him is this sort of sudden discovery of parenthood. Yeah. Um, so having that extra element to him as well as the sort of the emotional stuff, and you've still got the standard tough, serious, ruthless bond. I mean, he, he let a Land Rover drop on top of someone, so he's lost none of that ruthlessness, which I'm glad of. They didn't go too soft on him. Yeah, but all round, I think they've they've done absolute wonders for Daniel Craig. It's it's I, I mean, this as his sort of final bowing out, I think they've nailed it. Yep, Gordon. Yeah, I I think um, maybe one of his best performances is Bond. Yeah, um, the whole thing about him living in Jamaica—it's exactly what you think Bond would do when he leaves the service. It, it's great. Um, yeah, um, I, I love his chemistry with so many other characters it feels like him and Lighter have a proper they actually feel like like pals this time um yeah I, I probably in general I probably I probably find Daniel Craig more believable in this film and uh, I just get the sense he's having fun a bit more I don't like I don't want him to always be known to me as the, the dark brooding bond because there's maybe a bit too much of that in the certainly his first three films up to Skyfall um, he's always got that kind of chip on his shoulder, and, and then Spectre starts to have a bit more fun. Um, it's good to see it. There's a bit more of the the sort of good time Bond. So, um, but yeah, I think he's one of his maybe like this in Casino are his best acting performances. But I don't really think too much. His age is a um starting to become more obvious now, but it doesn't. To me, it's it's not it's not really an issue because they put. They're kind of playing up to his age as well. They're yeah. um, they're having him retired, and but he's not so he's not in such a state that he's not believable in the action sequences. He, he completely is. Yeah. So um, yeah, I I, I don't. I, it's hard to fault Daniel at all in this film. I think him mm. has they could the the costume department didn't really have their best there in this film. I think some of the choices are a bit questionable, and um, which is it's nothing to do with him, him but like like the the whole um the Italy scene just like. So it's like corduroy suit, you know. Um, but he look, he's, despite his age, I mean, he still looks great in the tux, doesn't he? Yeah, I, I never really sort of noticed that the end of the, the kind of the corduroy thing. It never, never struck out to me as something that was god awful. I like it was a little yeah. bit man from Del Monte, I suppose, when he was walking to yeah. uh, Vesper's grave. Yeah, that's yeah. what you mean. Yeah, 
I mean, I liked the the sort of fatigues he was wearing at the end. Um, the black mm. and the combat kind of I kind of like that with the yeah. I thought kind of militaristic kind of I quite like that look. Although I, I think uh, that odd as well. Actually. It's, it's kind of like a it's like a Victorian railway worker or something. There's something a bit sort of <laughs> unusual about it. <laughs> and uh, even when he's got the big. I don't know, there's, there's something... Uh, maybe it's the fact him and Nomi are, are both in, like, sort of you know, combat gear. It's, I don't know, there's, some, there's something not quite right about it. Yeah, like tactical stealth kind of, you know, sort of gear. Um, I, I didn't mind it. Um, I think uh, he carries it off. He, he certainly has the body still that you, you can look at and say, you know what, he could pull off a lot of different things because he's he's still in decent shape. And that's why you believe that he can take all of this you know, action and pummeling because the guy is, uh, yeah, still looking pretty good. And then, what, he's in his 50s now? He must be in his mid 50s. Um, yeah, I'm, I've got a feeling he's, he was maybe when he did this. Yeah. The one which is about the same Early age 50s. as Roger was, and he, he did Moonraker. But I think, though, I think he'll, Daniel Craig's always looked at his best when he's in his sort of like casual downtime, where like, I like the clothes he wears like when he's in Jamaica. Um, and I think, you know, maybe maybe there is a kind of nod there to, you know, Connery from Thunderball, like when he's with Lighter in the club. Um, and then just when like when he's on the boat and uh so some of it is really good and you know, some of the some of the clothing choices for the rest of the cast are brilliant. Um, you know, varies a bit. I mean, as I mentioned, I particularly liked the scene with like I just felt really felt to the first probably the first time since since him and Lighter were in the casino and Light introduced himself in Casino Royale. It was the first time I really kind of got that real chemistry between him and um, and Jeffrey Wright. Yeah. And um, I like the scene in the club. I think again, it's that's like a reference to Bond and Coral and and Lighter and Doctor. No, I, I even think um, Billy Magnuson's character um, Logan Ash, he actually has a bit of a, a Jack Lord look about him. I just mm. noticed that when they were in the club, it was it was pretty interesting and. Bond and Lighter have got their little drinking game going, which mm. is pretty cool. Yeah, definitely. I liked the Explorer. The fact that they had uh, Wright come back for... That's the, the most same performances by one actor for Felix Lighter, three films. Like, I was reading... Um, it felt like, again, it's all in Craig's art, Craig's films, so that kind of believable continuity, you can, you're, you're, you're invested because you know, and it feels like these guys have known each other for years and they just talk like mates that have done loads of plenty of missions before and they kind of have a bit of banter yeah. and things like that. I quite liked that. And it was good that we got it yeah. in this film, this final film as well. Um, Fran- that was why I think the dialogue was really flying like that scene between him and Lighter. The the one-liners there was great. The only thing I did say, I th- pick up on this time watching it, I don't know if it's maybe just whatever volume setup I've got, but it felt like they weren't in a club talking. It felt like because everyone was obviously, you need to hear the dialogue. If that was a real club, it would have been like, "Right, you what are you talking?" Like they'd be screaming at each other, like trying to talk to, through this music. Obviously, they they quieten down the, the background music, but it didn't feel like they were really having to to do anything to kind of be heard. It just felt like they were having a normal conversation. But you're meant to believe that it's <clears> like <throat> this loud, vibrant club behind them. That was the only thing that this time I noticed. But maybe it's my volume set up, and it was maybe quite quiet or something. I don't know. Yeah. Um, Fran, yeah. Um, so, I don't know. Um, I, I'm having a similar problem to you guys in the sense that there's so much to the movie that while you're talking, I'm thinking ahead, I'm thinking back, I'm thinking about all these things, and then I completely lose my, my train of thought with where I, well, where we'll, I am we'll, with it. We'll keep it to, to uh, 
to bond really and i suppose in extension of that the relationship with lighter i've kind of i suppose that's what we're kind of talking well, about in craig's performance I, I mean i guess i kind of i kind of already said or introduced my feeling on this that we really got to see much more of bond as a human being and as a character this time around as his personality um showing emotion like you know a bemusement as someone said this idea of bond you know as somebody and it also felt a little bit like bond was being dragged along by life a bit this time hmm. so he was finding himself in situations that he couldn't quite control whereas in the past there's a lot more of bond as you know bond has got the mission and he knows exactly what's going on and you know you know, there's there's a clear set of directives and whatever, a bit of mystery, but this time it really felt as if Bond... Yeah, he's know, kind of in the back foot for a lot of the film. Uh-huh, and I think as well, it's it's both professionally and personally, so, like, you know, he's, he's constantly finding out the things, these revelations about things, and then he's confused multiple times, it's like the child's not yours, the child is his, I mean, like, mm-hmm. you know, there's bits throughout the film where... um. You know, you, 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 and I have to say, you know, that, that, uh, particularly in the, the ending that, you know, the last 10 minutes that Steve McCall referred to, you really get to see that, you know, this kind of Daniel Craig getting a chance to really, really act as James Bond, you know, like a matured character, you know? Yeah. But it was really something else. Yeah. It's, the thing is, I suppose everyone, they've all acted as Bond, but it's an archetypal expected performance of Bond, and it's a sort of, everyone's brought their own little, it's not to sort of denigrate anyone, the, the prior actors, like Roger Moore brought a thing to Bond, he brought that kind of comic lightness to it, Dalton spoke about <laughs> it. It's actually quite funny, like, Steve, when you imagine Roger Moore going up that mountain at the end, like the sadness and all that, like Roger Moore would not have been able to act that. I know. Like, you know, I kind of raise the eyebrow. It's it's so different that, uh, yeah, I know. I mean, it's so different that I mean, you can't even imagine Connor in that situation. I don't even know if you can imagine, say, Dalton, who's more serious one. It's so far removed from the world of Moonraker and Octopus and even things like You Only Live Twice or even Goldeneye. It's it's so different. It does feel like they're in a different franchise. That is funny to compare them. I've said this before. The Craig era is the ones that stick out so much from the others. They toe the line mostly, and it, and it's it's a good thing because it's, it's an evolution of the franchise. They shouldn't stay in the same way, but it is funny to then compare them because they are so different. And this film, of all of the films, is so different from Moonraker and all these other films that came before. Um yeah. Uh, okay, let's talk about. Um, I wanted because well, I kind of feel like it's an extension of. Can I get into that? The writing of this film, like the, you know, the, we've mentioned. I think previously, it's Purvis and Wade came back. The other writers have been there since. What is it? Is it Goldeneye? Is it? Did, were they there for the, for the Bro- the Brosnian? Were they there before the Brosnian? I th- I think it may have been the world's not enough oh that's right that's it definitely yeah. yeah i would my money would be in the world's yeah. not enough they were involved in golden eye um I, tomorrow never dies i think it was bruce Fairstein mainly yeah. i so think it's, it's the world's not enough yeah and they've kind of obviously seen through ups and downs uh i would say those for their, their first two films you know there was some writing issues but then you know nobody can blame them for they've got casino royale there so these guys know their stuff 
Um, but they obviously brought in Carrie Fukunaga, I actually forgot to mention, was actually a credited writer as well here. Obviously, a huge input in the actual writing process as well for this film, which is, I think, a very strong point. I always think a, a director, it sometimes works to have the director. Their vision, um, you know, f- from the writing page as well can be much easier brought forward when they're part of the writing process. But then also Phoebe Waller Bridge and you know, it's I guess right from looking into what Phoebe Ball Bridge brought to it, they brought her on to add humor and character development. And I think we've mentioned this already. Like this is where this film excels. That was an amazing choice to do that. Like the lightness and the little subtle comedic because mo- this film isn't I mean, of the two and a half, you know, however forty five minutes long, it's not a funny film, but there is little glimmers of it that actually did make me chuckle because they come out of nowhere. And uh, I suspect a lot of that is her. Um, yeah, Steve, you you want to take us up on that? You, your thoughts on that? Yeah, the sort of I I completely agree that if if you're right in saying that she brought the the sort of depth to the characters, because I, I mean I mentioned with Daniel Craig the way that they've kind of given every I think every single person had some kind of backstory um i mean even paloma who we saw for about 10 minutes you know that she's just joined the service she's had about three weeks training yeah um she's not easily taken down by the charms of bond and sort of turns away quite quickly um even with with felix Leiter, did we know much about his sort of backstory and family because there was just one point just not long before he gets shot or whatever where felix says i want to get back to my family and tell them i saved the world again and i kind of ah. thought did we know he had a family? Did we know? Because that, that immediately kind of conjures up an image of him yeah. getting back from this mission and, you know, walking back into a house full of wife and kids. And obviously we know from License to Kill what happened to his wife. Oh, God. But it sort of conjures up this image of him sort of going back to a sort of wife and kids and throwing just something little like that in just before he gets killed adds another level of emotion. Yeah. It's not just, oh, there's yeah. a character getting killed. It's, oh, that's... um. You know, you can picture that is someone's husband, someone's dad, someone's yeah. brother, whatever. And that, it's those tiny little touches um, that kind of are touched, sort of each character, each character has that. You know, Q's backstory, fantastic. We, you know, we, there's very sort of, I don't know if it's a subtle hint, but you effectively find out that Q is gay. Oh, uh-huh, yeah. Uh, or Ben Wishaw's version, just that, that one little, he'll be here in 20 minutes. That's mm-hmm. all it takes. It's yep. not, it's not labored. It's not kind of, Throwing. Um and again, yeah, the so those kind of touches and the humorous touches as well, when there's that sort of random moment where Q is looking through his um is in the is in the, the plane, is it, where he's going through sort of the weapons and stuff that he's about to arm Bonds and Nomi with and there's a full tea set in one of the drawers. <laughs> I, just, I, I just love that. Yeah. And did you see the big um what do you call them? The big kind of gummy snake sweets he was eating? Yeah. And a few people, because I like to say, I've listened to, I've kind of analysed this film within an inch of its life before we even watched it, because it's been uh, obviously, um, it's been in the cinema for so long. But um, somebody, quite a lot of people mentioned that, and it's funny, it's because they they actually like focus in on it with the camera. It's like here's cues. Yeah, it's like but, a weird thing to sort of like. We're going to make sure we show that he's not just focused on this he's also enjoying his little sweets as he's doing this core yeah. central work <laughs> it's kind of I funny love that, yeah um, little touches it's great so i loved it as well like i haven't showed you fat. i like the music in the back of this kind of it just gave gave that this kind of idea of of Q's sort of like um quirks and idiosyncrasies it's just you know he's, he's cat meowing in the background this kind of 
odd music, the, the sort of low lit flat and everything, and and just he's just this he's band to a bonds guy. I just think like Ben Whishaw's just having a blast and having his yeah. his best scenes. I yeah. think in this film, yeah, Ben Whishaw. But it's only three, really, isn't it? Since yeah, he came on in Skyfall when they had that kind of slightly antagonistic start, and then obviously kind of it worked out. And yeah, it's Ben Whishaw's great. I love like Money Penny's not really in this one that much. It's just kind of in that one sort of a few scenes with them and 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 the scene with when bond and her visit ben wishaw um and he's obviously waiting he's you know preparing for his day and things like that and then they come here with this work <laughs> that he's got to do and it's oh i suppose it's not a nine to five is it uh you know he's just you know in the they make, bond makes a joke about his cat uh yeah it's just little things um and then my favorite ben wishaw moment is when so he's still under the pretense that they haven't told M they've been working with Bond, and then when they're in the you know M's meeting room and and then sort of M and Bond are already there, they and Money Penny and Q walk in with Nomi, and it's like <laughs> Q just starts talking, but he doesn't catch Bond trying to kind of give him the oh, it's okay, don't worry, and it's like oh Bond, oh how, how are you? <laughs> oh shut up or something like that. <laughs> M just shutting him down. Yeah, there is just beautiful. Yeah, a great dynamic. The the characters really really working together for me, and and Rafe finds as well i'm really liking his m i think uh, we're starting to get to get more of him and that that kind of antagonistic relationship between him and bond with the, the argument in the in the uh, in his office i really liked um yeah they, they've done really well with giving everyone little moments where they either one up each other or you know things like that and it serves the film just very well. You just, they, they just everyone comes across fantastic and also those new characters know me then um What's your thoughts on on uh, 007, I suppose? I think the witch um, introduced oh. is um, on the uh, on the island where you you sort of see her. Now, is that the first time you see her, or do you see her beforehand? Uh, yeah, I mean, she's undercover. We don't know who she is, but it kind of shows you a couple of times her, and then she bumps into Bond. Yeah, that's uh, right. And then yes. it's kind of like, then, so we know something's up, or maybe she's just flirting with him. Who knows? Um, and the way they set her up is looking as though she's going to be the first woman that Bond sleeps with. Mm-hmm. And then immediately the trope's inverted, and she takes off her wig and she unveils who she actually is. Yeah, yeah. Um, that that is an absolute stroke of genius. That is, it's just proof that you can take away those old Bond stereotypes, and the film still works perfectly fine. It wasn't to the detriment of that scene at all that. Bond didn't jump into bed with her, and instead they kind of, they just kind of, she just kind of warned him off and then left. You know that um, this was the film that came out in say 1975. He would have slept with her, and then they would have discussed whatever mission she wants him to do, or something in bed, or something like that. Exactly. <laughs> yes. Um. And it's it's been done 24 times, and it, it the film didn't miss the fact that that didn't happen. Yeah. Um. I really liked her. The way that they kind of had her as a complete polar opposite to Bond, she was very... What's what I'm after? She, she she told the line very much. She was... Um, she, whereas Bond was very much the renegade and didn't listen to M, she was very much, oh, sir, yes, sir, I'll do that right away, sir. Uh, very professional, um, following, wasn't she? Yes, following the rules to the T, the complete opposite of James Bond. Um, and yet, they've given her... Almost as though they've gone, right, we, the, the, the 007... Uh, name and image has been tarnished slightly by james bond so let's give it uh, to someone 
Queen's Who's a star. bit more obedient. Yeah, that, yeah, I never thought of that. Actually, that's true. And it's the the way she uses it to clearly what like kind of goad bond a bit, like you know, uh, oh that must hurt when someone calls her 007 as they're walking together, like that, those little scenes, and then he kind of one ups like, her as he goes into the office, and then M says, "Oh, just just you, uh, James," and he's like, "Oh, that must hurt." <laughs> That relationship between the two of them right at the start where they are immediately wary and jealous of each other yeah. is fantastic. Because her face when he walks into the office and she's like, what the hell is he doing here? Yeah. And the way she just kind of joins them walking I, I, and they are kind of bumping off each other and goading each other. Mm-hmm. That was, yeah, that that was fantastic. Like her, she's clearly quite insecure in her position in that sense. Like when he gets reinstated and she's like, what number? <laughs> Everyone just dingies her. Yes. <laughs> That's another example of a little bit of character depth. She's obviously very uh, confident and um, competent in what she does, but there is there is that insecurity. Yeah. You're absolutely right, that's and great. that's that's nice. That yeah, Gordon, what's your thoughts? Yeah, I um, pretty much agree with uh, most of what you guys have said. Um, I think the great chemistry between Noe and Bond right from the start. That sort of um, I like the wee disguise she has. That's very much old school Bond, and I think the fact because there isn't a, an obvious romantic scene and maybe that's maybe why the chemistry works so well with the two of them i like how nomi kind of does her own thing and um, like for example in bond and paloma are um basically they're basically trying to escape from the big um specter birthday party whatever you want to call it in cuba and which nomi's kind of trying to do her own thing her mission is like just extract obrachev and she's just sort of in total control of that for a period of the film um yeah and uh, i think I, I admire the fact they didn't there was a big thing made before this film about there's going to be a female 007 and, and so forth, and it was pretty obvious like, who it was going to be and all that. They didn't really beat us over the head with that, you know. They they still allowed Bond to have his um his moments, and they allowed still they allowed her to have her moments, and um yeah, and I think just she worked so well with Daniel Craig, um, Lashana Lynch. I was trying to remember her name, and um, I th- I think they could have written her better. I mean, I I think the um there was maybe too much of this given her this sort of futuristic looks so like with that given her the biggest the most souped up supercar ever square sunglasses it's like you know a bit weird but i liked her best like obviously when you know she's she looks very much the the new double like you know wearing she's wearing just like normal sort of business attire the way bond would wear his business attire to the office mm-hmm. you know um yeah um i think i think in general the female characters were all great in this film yeah completely agree completely agree and Paloma then as well we've mentioned her a couple of times uh, this was the, when you talk to people just casually about this film she's always the one that people, that whole section is the the, the people mentioned she was like a standout, she kind of stole the scenes, and the Armas isn't it? Um, mm-hmm. And she's only what, is that like a 20 minute section, maybe half an hour, but uh, it's the sort of main talking point that everyone loved, I mean very glamorous uh, I've seen her in Nights Out and she is the main in that and she is fantastic a completely different type of character but she's fantastic in it, if anybody hasn't seen it you should totally check that out um, and I don't think I've seen her in a lot of other things but uh, yeah again the the kind of again, you get the feeling this is Philly B. Waller Bridge's writing here where she's written this character who comes across initially like she is like um like a kind of Brit Eklund character, like that kind of slightly inept, um, kind of sort of a wee bit lacking in confidence, a bit silly, and then it kind of 
flips when you see what she can actually do when her skills come out she is fully competent she's the one that spots the russian scientist she's kind of following the guys just the way that bond is she's catching everything and um the the dialogue and uh kind of interplay is just really good and then obviously her fighting skills her you know martial arts she like flies across the room like a kind of guy uh she you know murders men just casually it's uh it's, it's a chaotic scene but it's, it's one of the the fun moments of the film um what's your thoughts fran well i guess i don't really i don't really think so like i find myself not really noticing what gender folk are now in movies do you know what i mean like i i, I kind of years ago I never really used to notice and then there was a lot of changes in cinema and TV and you noticed a bit and I find myself starting not to notice so much now yeah that's a um, good thing because that's but, it's only noticeable in this film or because it's the Bond franchise which isn't really known for having that isn't it uh-huh, which is an achievement that they didn't you know I wasn't thinking at any point because the thing is like you know the whole idea that many women are any different when it comes to competency and, and, you know, in terms of being able to sort of, you know, be competent at a particular job, um, it's very, very kind of like, like in, in the real world, like, I mean, right now, my current boss is a woman. You know what I mean? And, and many of my bosses over the years have been women and there's a lot of women out there who are far more competent than me at a lot of things. You know what I mean? So it's not something I find unbelievable. Um, uh, I guess, like, the idea that there's, no, there's absolutely nothing unbelievable about women being in the the, S, the world of espionage. No, definitely nothing not. unbelievable about that at all. You know, in in a number of different ways. Like, you know, um, now what you could say is that you know, if every agent was a woman or every agent, you know, uh, today it might seem unbelievable because the statistics would tell you that not a lot of women would choose that line of work. Or like, do you know what I mean? Or like, it's like if we get a film set in a mine and the, like all the miners were women, it wouldn't be realistic. Do you know what I mean? Like, but the fact that a woman could rise up to that level of competence within the MI6 is just, mm. you know, like I didn't. I'm thinking about it more now after hearing the discussion than I did watching the film. Um, but I think it's testament to the way they've written it because it didn't feel like it was. It didn't feel like a kind of charity or pity casting for women it didn't feel as if they were doing it to say hey women you can do this it didn't feel that way it didn't feel patronizing towards women or towards men or, or anybody in the audience at all yeah definitely um, not no and i think that was really like i really quite enjoyed that and what's interesting is that the, the two kind of two kind of main women in the film um lashana lynch's character is maybe it's kind of a tougher feminine character and then you've got um the the character Bond meets um I can't remember her name though. Paloma. Um Paloma, yeah, yeah. She's maybe more of a kind of a like a, a like a bit more feminine like style the style of how she, you know, presents herself. But the, but they're both just as do you know what I mean? Like they're different, like but still I don't know how to describe it. I it just feels like there's a lot of thought put into them. Oh, you know what I mean, like the, the, you know, they're they're, you know, they're not just there, and and that goes to every character actually, in the film. That there was, I think we mentioned that earlier on. There was this kind of depth mm-hmm. of of 
background and, and motivation going on. But I'm very, very pleased. I am pleased that, that I got I watched it and I didn't feel one single glimmer of, oh, that's a bit lazy, oh that's that you know like I have no doubt, like there's been many films that a lot of women audience members would go and see and they'd roll their eyes at it, they'd go, Oh, they're just trying to sell me something here. Do you know what I mean? But I don't think anybody would feel that way with this. No, at all. it feels natural. It feels well written. And it's um, I congratulate it for that because how many times have we, at some point in these films, kind of taken points away for the writing of certain characters? And um, this one, nope, don't have to do that. They they excelled. Um, and it felt like I think it's, they, they were it's actually the playing up on their own history by having that yeah. slightly, by Paloma being in that initial scenes coming across oh my first my ne- i'm nervous my only three weeks training <laughs> and it's like oh god like yeah when i first watched it i was like oh god what are they gonna do with this character is she gonna be completely useless like is this is gonna be why have they sent her out on this mission like what are they trying well, to I mean, do and it, it subverts I, it so well that that's why it's fun i suppose to watch. a truly a truly realistic film though a truly realistic film would have a cavalcade of of competence and incompetence across the spectrum of human experience, of human identity. Do you know what I mean? Like, you know, there are like your competency level is not dictated by your physical attributes, <laughs> unless you're unless you're like a, a very like a four foot eight guy trying to play basketball in America. Do you know what I mean? Like, you know, it's it it doesn't work that way. So, you know, I don't I don't tend to worry so much about that because. Anybody can be can display any level of competence, really. Do you know what I mean? Like God knows. I mean, we do. Like, I mean, I I, I at times surprise myself with how dumb I can be. Do you know what I mean? Like, like it's just how how daft I can be at times. Yeah. So yeah, it doesn't surprise me. We're we're talking about like competence and incompetence, and I, I mean that that it never even got to the stage that even crossed my mind with any of the female characters. You just are so taken in by how great they are. And I agree that you know Paloma for Anna de Armas like having fairly limited amount of screen time I think that's why everyone talks about her because she's not in the film for particularly long but she's so memorable and I think she struck that balance perfectly of um, being a bit nervous and over the top but she, for that she brought this much needed levity to when the film was looking as if it was going to be quite dark yeah definitely and the, gla- the glamour and that kind of helped with that like she's doing these all these karate kicks with her you know, with that dress on and stuff. And and actually, I, I think that, um, you know, Anna de Armas was doing a lot of that herself from the back behind the scenes stuff. I saw the same as, I think, I think Lashana Lynch was doing a lot of her combat stuff and, and obviously Daniel doing his, which he's always done. Yeah, that's good to hear. I like that. Um, what I found funny about Anna de Armas' character is when she takes Bond into the, the wine cellar, why, <laughs> I mean, it isn't the normal thing if you're not planning on having anything happen on a sexual intimate type thing, why would you start undressing him? Like, he, she clearly was, it looked like, it, that's why Bond misread the, the signs. And she's like, oh, no, no, no. I, th- <laughs> I think it was kind of a, I think it was kind of a, her naivety. Right. Yeah, I can go along with that, yeah. Yeah, I mean, it was yeah, funny, it was but, funny, uh, it's just a funny miscommunication, but I just she thought, just well, like she's quite, not doing very well to not give that sign off. She seems strangely innocent. Yeah. <laughs> like she you know, she seemed to kind of not really realise which what was going on. Yeah. But um I it was uh, it's interesting thinking about it, like Lashana Lynch's character was the one that was more sort of like making mistakes all the time. Do you know what I mean? Like at certain points and then later on kind of was, was not making mistakes so much. Mm-hmm. Do you know what I mean? But I, I just felt like it was just really I feel like we don't talk 
what, what I'd like to do, right? I feel like we'll have made a hundred percent progress when we just talk. We talk about the men the same way. So, like, you know, what about Bond and Felix Slater? They made loads of mistakes. So the only <laughs> like we have to, we have... yeah, we're not. I'm not making this. I'm trying not to make it like a political thing. But the only reason it is a point is because this is a franchise that is known for not doing that. So this is why this is a really excellent change. Not just one character being well written, but three main lead cat or well. One's not a lead, but she was still well written in her short sequence. That's what the I point I'm trying to make is that this is a this is a big thing for the Bond franchise. That's why it's a talking point because they haven't done well, that I, consistently I, 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 in I, I, any of the films. Well, while this one is maybe the first that's fully believable, right? What I want, and I, I would say, well, maybe not the first, but like let's think about this, right? As as since we've watched all the Bond films, I would say that maybe it's kind of they've kind of managed to get to to kind of. A better place, would you say, over the past fifteen years, twenty years? It's progressively been getting better. Yeah, each film is like I'd say there's been less. I think Spectre had a like moment. that was the improvement was the time yeah. period, wasn't it, when it really started to change twenty years ago? I'd say that's the Craig era, really, because Brosnan's was there were like nothing was as bad as the Connery era. Moore's was slightly better. He wasn't beating them up as much, but he was still like sleeping <laughs> around and things yeah. like that and all that. But then you know they got. Like progressively better each decade, so and things like that. Fifteen years, then, yeah. I so because uh, Craig started in two thousand and six, was it or two thousand and seven, something like that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So it's a fifteen years. So I mean, it's not like it's just yesterday, but at the same time, when I think back to Casino Royale, well, I don't know, Best Berlin. Would yeah, one uh, character, but oh, this is free. Yeah. Uh, this is what I'm yeah, saying. Yeah, this yeah. is like a consistency in all of the characters, and not only were they. Because they all had flaws in this film, and they all had like yeah. moments of weakness or whatever, but it wasn't a defining characteristic, and it was something that was a bit more in depth, and that's just something that's something that should be celebrated. One of the things I really enjoyed about it, it just made the film better. This is a film that was more uh-huh. about its characters, <laughs> and that they're they're some of the best things about it. But the the males are fantastic. Bond, we've spoken about Bond already a fair bit, and all the, the the other characters surrounding Bond were all had their little moments. They were all great before we move on from the characters i want to talk about oh uh, and um, yeah oh sorry m with his m is apparently turned into an alcoholic as well oh, yeah a little a little hint of that yeah that's an interesting little dialogue which moment. is interesting because of um wasn't one of the guys that played m in the past an alcoholic bernard, himself bernard lee the first m that did the majority of the, the well album. interestingly i mean i think there was in the the fleming novels that there was um reference made to m being a heavy drinker but bond being a seriously heavy drinker too but um and then in, in the film dimes are forever obviously m mentions he can't drink because of his liver <laughs> so but um i didn't really think of it as maybe m being a, an alcoholic i just thought of it as like m's having a particularly tough day and he, he kind of m knew he was in the wrong by the Heracles project, it was like his baby, and he he kind of allowed it to get to this point. And I do, I love the line though. Um, Bond's just like, "My God, you're thirsty yeah. today." <laughs> it's like you have got no right to talk to me like that. I want to talk about that, but well, before we get onto the plot, which I think is something we need to talk about, I wanted to finish up on the character stuff. So we've still got um Leah Sido's character, uh, Madeline Swan, and we've obviously spoke about her a fair bit already. I think in the pre-titles and things like that. Um, and again, I you know say that I think. She is one of the central figures in this film. Um, she's you know the, one of the first characters we see as a child, and I think the perfect casting. By the way, that child actor could not have looked any more like what you'd expect her to look like when she was young. Um, 
but I also really enjoyed um, her performance, but also the chemistry with Safin, the, the, the scene in her office is one of the scenes that I love um, like halfway into the film. There's a, a it's a very well played scene. Um, what are your guys' thoughts on on her? Yeah, Leah Sador really gets the chance to act a lot more in this film. Mm-hmm. Um, again, you know, helped by you know great costume choices as well. Just um, I think because I I feel that's very important to all the characters. Really, it's interesting how she wears white for most of it as well. Mm-hmm. I wonder, some at first thought is that Mister White or her dad or is it um I don't know a sign of something else, but. Until the the final scene, but I mean, meant to know who her dad is. That he's obviously a killer of what was it? Did he kill? Oh Sam's yeah, um, fam, I don't. I don't know why. Is there any kind of I like? Think this, but mm-hmm. wasn't Mister? Well, I always thought for some reason Mister White was like her father or something. What was yeah, that I literally what? just looked up. Mister White is Madeline's father. Yeah. Oh right. So Mister White was in Casino in Quantum. He was the guy that was in the car boot. In quantum, no, he was in he was in um, Spectre as well. And if you think, well, yeah, he was. And if you think back to Spectre, she talk she shows Bond a secret room of his, and, oh, and he said he he mentions yeah. about how oh, your dad loves his secret rooms, and you see his secret room in the pre-title sequence when Madeline's young. That's actually yeah. This just shows you I need to watch them films again. It's been so long that little things like that I'd completely forgotten about. Yeah, again, that's continuity isn't it that's quite interesting you don't have that usually with natalia you know or anything like christmas jones doesn't have that kind of depth or backstory um so again that's something that i quite like there's a bit more you feel like you you know her a bit more you feel like you know about her her past and things like that and yeah it's another great facet of this film right uh before i suppose before we move on to plot let's talk about the villain then safin Rami Malek, um, I think he's one of the points that is maybe a divisive one. I don't know where we where do we feel, Gordon. What's your thoughts on on Safin? Well, my my um my concerns um are more to do with his plot. Um, I generally I quite like Rami Malek in the role. Um, he does have um. Is it a good or is it a bad thing he has the kind of getting towards the traditional Bond villain tunic at the end? He's his grandstand speech about a exposition of the plot, which some of that's fine, but um, I like his look. Like I said, Rami Malek, was, I believe he was born to play a Bond villain. Um, that intense look he has. Yeah. I, I like. I actually liked... I know it's sort of like getting into sort of dangerous territory, but he, you know how he because it kind of shows how nasty he is, he kind of takes Matilda off Madeline towards the end. But I like how he how he was so... Because Bond villains were meant to be a bit nuts, and if you got the impression he was really deluded. He kept using words like protect and stuff like, I'm, I'm here to protect you and things like that. It's like he had no reason to sort of protect her, but he believed that he was... It was almost as if he believed like he was the father figure and he's like showing Matilda the plants. I think that's a particularly good scene and she almost touches one and great acting by mm-hmm. um the little girl obviously as well. Incredible for that kind of age. But yeah, I mean um that's where I really I, I really liked Rami Malik and he looks his intense look looks especially um effective when when he just after he's had that fight with Bond they're both beating up um lying the pool at the end. Yeah. Steve 
I'm a massive fan of Rami Malek. A huge fan of Mr. Robot, the series that he did. So I, mean, I was I was chuffed to bits when he came in. And as Gordon's mentions, looks-wise, and I think voice-wise as well, he is a perfect Bond villain. He's not the sort of mad, crazy megalomaniac. He harks back to some of the the more subtle villains I think we've spoken about in some of the other podcasts, some of the other films that are so would, a little more I would say kind quietly... of megalomaniacal. Like, is he not going to so wipe yeah, out entire, like... That's, I was going to say that's that. I've, I've worded that slightly wrong. He's not the sort of crazy, over-enthusiastic, louds, getting in on the action mm-hmm. type, um, but he's, he is the sort of quiet, softly spoken megalomaniac, which I think is similar. There are other villains, I'm sure, in sort of the past films that that slightly well, harks back to. Maybe like a Drax um, of some sort, maybe? Yes, Drax is probably sort of the, the closest to it, I think. But, I mean, I think I might be slightly siding with Gordon when it comes to his plot. Maybe I missed one or two things, but it didn't feel completely obvious to me what his overall plan was. Yes, he wanted the Heracles project and to use it to wipe out people. Yeah, but did I did yeah. I miss something to kind of what his end goal was? What exactly was who was he wanting to wipe out and what exactly was he wanting to do i, I don't know if that got lost somewhere in a moment because there was so much other stuff going on yeah. but i think something unless i've missed something i think something fell down there uh, it's, it's the exact same with me i if somebody was forcing me to try and explain his motivations i wouldn't be able to you know accurately do it. i don't think i really struggle with the plot for me is one of the the main issues of this film it's very naughty tied up with the whole specter stuff and close trying to finish all of that but also his own organization and then yeah the heracles thing with them and, and it's, it's just very very knotted and i didn't really follow all of it especially the first time but also i when you think back on it, it doesn't make quite a lot of sense, or you've there's a lot of plot holes. Um, Fran, what's your thoughts about the main plot? Uh, so we'll, um, I suppose we'll start with Safin, and then we'll, I think we'll move on to plot because they're kind of tied together. Um, I don't know. I mean, I, I, I can never really tell how much is contrived. I mean, obviously, they didn't sit down with Christian Royale and go, "I know, in fifteen years' time, we're going to have Rami Malek, and and we're going to." We're going to have this thing about a, a disease or whatever, or a computerized thing. Do you know what I mean? Like nobody really kind of. I think they kind of. I don't know. It was like it's like a kind of a greatest hits compilation of Daniel Craig, isn't it? Mm-hmm. It's like things that reference the other movies that they could get. So you get reference. To, you get a reference to each film, really, haven't you? Yeah, yeah. somewhere. Like, yeah, there's a hell of a lot in. So. Is that side of it? I mean, it's from my understanding, basically, there was this kind of, uh, like, nanoparticle things or whatever that you could put in people that would then, you could, you could then, um, wipe out loads of diseases, but also it could be used to wipe out groups of people and hold them to ransom almost, sort of thing. Yeah. But but, you could wipe them out at any time. But why? (laughs) That's. I mean, mean, the whole idea of, it's the whole idea of, Control, uh, absolute power and control, and you saw that with Rami Malek's ca- character, um, uh, Lucifer Safin. I know Lucifer, Lucifer, Lucifer. Satan, maybe just spell. Uh-huh, you know, uh-huh. I mean, it's a bit, it's, like, it's a bit much. <laughs> he he's double evil, but um, uh-huh. it's this kind of idea of like 
when Bond is sitting there begging him not to do something, and and he's like, "Look at your father. This is power. You know, this is what power is." Do you know what I mean? Like he's obsessed with that idea. Yeah. Like having leverage over people. Mm. Like leverage, basically. I mean, it's the villain's wet dream. I'm going to click a button, and all of you are going to die. Um, Clean and tidy. I find it quite interesting as well. Like, I often find it quite funny that murder, like, and I always find the Bond franchise quite kind of bleakly amusing for this reason that this person's going to do something wrong. They don't deserve a trial. We're going to immediately kill them. Do you know what I mean? So you kind of get, um, uh, what is that? Who's, uh, getting a lot of, that's a, I think that might be oh. Gordon kind of rustling a little. Oh, I think it's just on uh, mic. It sounded right. like, um, coin, like plastic. Chips like a, po- a poker table or something, but um, I it was uh, just this idea of just just murdering people rather than taking them to trial. Do you know what I mean? Like I always find that kind of like they remember when the guy said to Lashana Lynch's character, "I could wipe out your race in a second. She just kicks him into the acid. Yeah, you know what I mean? like there's like there's no. It's just like right. Do you know what? Some things are just just killable. Do you know what I mean? Like, the, there's, some, there's, there's no need for the jury. Do you know what I mean? We're just going to kick you into the acid, just son of a bitch. Do you know I, what I mean? Like, I have it. thought that sometimes. It's like they're obviously they've got the license to kill, so it's like, well, uh-huh. if you sort of they, say something judge, that it's might. Like judge Dredd. Yeah. It's like Judge Dredd. It's like um, Judge, Jury, and Executioner all in one. And some, you know, I, I, I'm quite happy with the decision. <laughs> like, I think, I think the judgment was quite right. Do you know what I mean? Well, he's a horrible character, and uh, I suppose we'll come to him as well, actually. It's one of the. Um, but on Safin first, Fran, um, but at the actual Rami Malik performance, what what's what's your thoughts? I thought it was I thought it was good. I mean, I I I, I don't know. I mean, I, I I'm not so much of a fan of his big bug eyed stare. Do you know what I mean? Like, I I, I don't think it always looks so good. I think sometimes it looks like he's trying to do that. I mean, like, he does have I mean? big wide eyes. That's maybe just you're making fun of how he looks now. No. <laughs> All right, yeah, yeah. I thought he was blind, even though his eyes were that big. Right. No, um, no, I, I just, I just, I, I don't think, I, I don't know. I think he was perfectly fine in the role. He was creepy, wasn't he? Mm-hmm. You know, I mean, I think that's the thing that really, you know, he was kind of going for there, this idea of being incredibly sort of, I don't know, uh, I don't know what the word like. Like he's, he's un- not. He's unsettling. He's, almost, he's, he's almost, got a kind of vibe about him, isn't he? But but he's almost like he's almost um, what's the word? Otherworldly, like a vampire or something like that, isn't he? Yeah. He's like, he doesn't seem like a human. Yeah. You know. Well, like, they kind of hinted at that at the start when, as we've pointed out, Madeline pumps about six shots into him, and he kind of lies still for a second and then immediately regains consciousness again so it almost does feel like there's something slightly otherworldly about him from the start mm-hmm. whether that's a plot or not I'm not quite sure but there is something almost yeah I wish there was a line sort of supernatural there yeah I wish there was a line that at least explained that I would be happy with a, a throwaway line that or someone is able to he's got this venom in him that can actually prolong life beyond normal like you know, injuries and things like that or something and it somehow stops the aging process or slows it down and then it's like, oh, okay, those little plot holes, okay, they've explained it with that line. It's ridiculous, but that's at least explained. Whereas now I'm, yeah. I'm actually questioning, like, oh, did they think of that? Why Why is that? Um, but yeah, it's, it's an interesting character. He's not up there as one of my favourites, favourites, but um, he's not also one of the worst as well. He does have a, a kind of unique look and vibe about him being one of the youngest Bond villains there is as well. 
there were certain points where he, he came across almost as quite innocent, but then then something terrible would happen, like when he's like, I'm not very good at speaking about myself, so I brought a memory box with mm-hmm. me. And then he gives her the box that's got a mask inside it. It's like, what a switch, you know, from, from one kind of tone to another. I know. It's like, oh dear. I love that yeah. scene so much. And yeah, I mean, I was listening to a podcast with Rami Malek talking about it, and this is before the film, so they couldn't go into spoilers, but he was talking about what he kind of, what he used to kind of, you know, help him get into the role. And he obviously says the, the character's so evil, it's, you can't really, you know, go method with this kind of part, but, uh, <laughs> like, I mean, who, he's so... Who, who in the real world compares yeah, to that? Yeah, exactly. But like, like, not even Hitler was yeah. that otherworldly, you know? You had to kind like, of, like, try and find a way to somehow get into this character, and he said that there was a scene that, uh, I think, between the writers, I think Barbara Broccoli had kind of given it the sort of okay, but he didn't allude to what it was, but he just said there was a scene that is so dark that I said to them, I don't want this to be in the film. And I'm guessing it's something to do with the child. He's probably going to kill the kid or something. But he said, I think we need to soften this or cut this out. I just can't do this scene. Um, I don't think the audience will take to it either. Um, we're going too far. So then they changed it. So whatever it is, you know, who knows if it was that scene where he, you know, um, Matilde like you know bites his finger maybe <laughs> that scene went a lot differently than just her him letting her go or something who knows um, but yeah God help us yeah but that's an interesting thing that he was the one that approached Barbara Broccoli and said I, I don't think uh, and she was like yeah fair enough you're right let's change it but um, that takes balls I've got to say approaching Barbara Broccoli yeah. and saying there's a point in this Bond film I want you to change yeah yeah. I think that's the question was they were talking about how the producers are very approachable about that and they're very hands on but also willing to let the actors and everyone else collaborate and he was like actually that's a good point because there was a scene that I did want to approach her um, you know I'm a newcomer to the franchise but I'm you know able to go up and speak to her and say look I think we kind of need to change this I'm not kind of comfortable with this Um. Right, so the plot again. We've kind of spoken about that. I think um, it is its main, the film's main issue for me. I didn't um, fully grasp it, and also just nanobots and things like that are where I'm a bit like, uh, it's a bit red dwarf for me. I'm not sure I'm fully on board with it for some well, reason. Se- seemingly, I think it was actually um, supposed to be a disease, but because of COVID, I think the the, the rumor was they changed it because it was a bit too depressing for it to be really real life. Does that mean that so they, think it, they reshot scenes then? Well, um, it would have just been like, partly, but it wasn't that much. It would have been like visual references to what it was called and things like that. So very subtle. Like I, I don't know if it's 100% true, but I think there was an element of it was supposed to be some kind of engineered disease and then obviously COVID happened and they didn't want to they didn't really want to have it connected to it in real life, you know? Yeah, interesting. So instead, they changed it to the thing that Bill Gates is apparently putting in the COVID vaccine to give us all 5G. <laughs> well, actually, interestingly enough, um, uh, I read an article the other day um, talking about how, what was it? It was another thing people said, and we all kind of laughed at it, but it sounds kind of James Bondy, and actually, you never know, maybe maybe uh, Lucifer, Lucifer, or what's his name, Lucifer Safin is out there, right? Um, they've got a, a wee chip they can put in us. <laughs> um, it was in the paper. Mm-hmm. Um, and I was thinking to myself, hang on a minute, you know, but it, it looks like a bit of James Bond technology, like something Q would give out. Aye. It's incredible. Yeah. It's yeah. amazing. It's like, a, it's like smaller than a, it's like a millimetre, like smaller, it's like a, it's like tiny, like microscopic. But I'm, um, 
Yeah, I think they were trying to bizarrely, whether they got it right or wrong, I think they were trying to, um, they were basically trying to re- remove it from the real world a wee bit. So there's the side, that there's the that nanobots and the virus side of the plot, but there's also the kind of the closure of the whole Spectre organization. Um, what do you guys think of the the sort of way that this the plot intertwines with the sort of Spectre stuff? Uh, that's quite a big failure to me, to be honest, Steve. Because Spectre are meant to be the ultimate enemy bond and responsible for, um, and Bofeld kind of is in the in the Craig era responsible for kind of almost leaving Bond with nothing, and um, they're meant to just be the the ultimate powerful. They're even more powerful than Quantum, who we encountered earlier, and for them all to just be wiped out in the one place so quickly and I mean I do like the whole villain versus villain thing to begin with like Saffin versus Spectre but I just felt for for Daniel's whole tenure to get tied up as Bond especially it's got callbacks to Vesper and events of Casino Royale it had to end with an endgame with Spectre it didn't quite it feels like this like added on thing like um, using you know Saffin and his organization. I don't. Um, it's messy. I don't really like the way that was dealt with. I especially don't like the way the Blofeld was just bumped off. See, I wonder why they did that. Because um, they obviously felt after a film called Spectre, where they were, you know, making a big deal of the fact we've got the rights now. Let's do something with Spectre and Blofeld, and they have this film, and it was a bit of a kind of misfire in some ways. And then they're like, right, well, we can't just forget it. <laughs> he's in prison. He's not dead. So we have to write him in. So they were in a difficult position where they wanted to create their own villain, but also had to tie things up and make sense of it. I always wonder if they should have had uh, Safin be part of Spectre, but he's like, a, you know, maybe it's set up to that he's going to like get Blofeld out but then betrays him or something. So it's still Spectre you're dealing with, but he's taking control of Spectre or something. Yeah. That could have been interesting. Uh, what do you guys think, uh, Fran or Steve? Yeah, um, I am with you. I think having Saturn perhaps in some way taking over from Blofeld and leading the organization on would have made a bit more sense, but I agree that the way they just wipes them out. And the, the fact that Blofeld's been kind of, obviously up until a, a point, the, the sort of Bond villain... Um, and the way he was just bumped off and then announced basically by Tanner walking into a room and quite quietly going, oh, he's dead. That was it. That was Blofeld's death. This is this is the death of one of the most prominent Bond characters of the entire franchise. And it did feel a little bit throwaway and underwhelming and as though they probably should have done something a little bit bigger with it. I mean, wiping out all of Spectre demonstrated well, how the Heracles technology works. So I can see it from that perspective. Yeah. But the the way, I don't know, the, the way that they, as a result, just effectively took 25 films worth of Bond history and just kind of tossed it to the side casually, they could possibly have done something a little more adventurous and um, thoughtful with it. Yeah, and it's not just that. It's Blofeld, um, the reveal towards the latter half of Spectre. Blofeld, James, I'm the author of All Your Pain. Everything that's happened in the last three films is down to me. Now all of a sudden, it's it kind of should be a bit Blofeld in the final showdown with Bond, I feel. See, this is where I think... Yeah. My, sorry, is that where you're from? I'll let you speak in a second. I think for me, 
I didn't enjoy the Christoph Waltz version of Blofeld and how they wrote it and that whole retcon, their half-brothers and all this kind of stuff. Um, so maybe they realised maybe we shouldn't go make him our main villain and do something new and try and do something fresh with that. But that's the problem. They've got, you know, different strands trying to tie together and try and make sense of it. And I don't know if they didn't they didn't nail it for me. Um and his one scene starts off really well. The the tension built up as he's approaching is kinda of, again it's like a horror moment. There's this or uh, what's gonna happen, it's quite exciting. But then it doesn't follow through. I don't like the dialogue with him and and, and Bond. It's a bit didn't work for me, Fran. I'll let you speak now. Sorry. Oh yeah, yeah, well. yeah. Well, I, I, it definitely wasn't planned. You know, I mean, I think we all know that. But I, I think it was. I thought it was okay. I mean, I, like I say, it was like a it was like a retread of Daniel Craig's era. It was like they were trying to kind of kind of cover things that we'd seen, and do you know what I mean. And it, 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 the problem with that is it can feel a wee bit rushed and a wee bit shoehorned. That's the problem with that sort of thing. Um. I actually quite like the fact that Blofeld was kind of matter-of-factly just killed. Do you know what I mean? Like, I mean, that was kind of unexpected. Yeah, it was unexpected, and I didn't mind, because I'm not the biggest fan of the Blofeld character. But that's a big, a, a big star to have back, just for a wee bit like that. Yeah. Well, they were they were closing off everything. They killed off Phoenix Felix Leiter, they killed off Blofeld. It did feel like those were the signposts to tell you Bond ain't going to survive this film. Like, it feels like we're killing off big things here in this franchise, and you know he's not safe. Um, but uh, you know that's to most Bond fans. If you watch a Bond film, you know he's always safe. So it's still probably still not quite believable that you could be watching a Bond film where he's maybe not going to survive. Um, yeah. But yeah, it's yeah. I, I, the plot is messy for me. Um, Right, okay, well, I want to touch on a few more things before we finish up. Okay, so the, we've kind of covered, I think, the, I suppose the general action scenes, what do we think of the actual the sort of direction the action scenes? Like, you know, we had, there was not many, but they were sort of, certainly, I thought, quite well made. You know, I love, my, my favourite is probably the one in the in the forest, the kind of misty forest with the, uh, towards the end. Steve, I'll let you... Um, yeah, I mean, for me, that kind of felt the slowest, but I think that, in a sense, kind of works. Uh, it looked great. You're right. The Misty Forest was really that kind of atmospheric setting for a fight was nice. And it wasn't kind of everyone piling out of nowhere and gunfight, this, that, and the next thing. It was a little bit more one shot every so often. You had sort of distant noises in the background. You weren't quite sure... You could tell that there were enemies circling Bond because you could hear kind of motorbikes whizzing past in the distance, but you couldn't quite work out where they were coming from. And that kind of disconcerting um, action scene, I thought was quite... It was actually, sort of come to think of it, quite... It was a bit more different to your sort of standard Bond shootout. You obviously, you, you had the stereotypical... You got the sort of stereotypical shootout out of the way, I think, in the pre-title sequence where he was being chased through Italy and you had the DB5 and the guns and the sort of donutting to kill everyone and stuff like that. Oh, yeah. I think that contrasted with that scene in the forest, which also had that really sort of harsh scene where you see um, the guy, Logan Ash, um, his sort of demise where Bond effectively just drops a Land Rover on him. Yeah. That's where you see that sort of slow, cold, harsh sort yeah. of um, sort of ruthlessness come yeah. through. Because at the same time, you've also got that, because he's He's also in protective mode because he's very aware that not only has he got 
uh, Madeline, but also Matilda in the back of that Land Rover. So he's that's where you see the kind of sort of protective. I think it's the sort of first bit where you see that kind of protective fatherness yeah. in Bond because you see him kind of cradling Matilda and then trying to him trying to sort of keep them safe while at the same time focus on taking out the the villains. Um, yep. So that that action scene in particular was great. I, I liked the action because the other one that obviously comes to mind is the one we mentioned where the towards the end where Bond's in the lair um, taking out people kind of on staircases and that kind of shaky camera work where they're following them down. And there's, there's one point almost where it looks like they're fighting and they kind of bump into the camera. You <laughs> kind of really feel as though you're in there. like You're almost like you're hiding and they've, they've kind of hit you in the face, mm-hmm. which I thought was quite cleverly done. Yeah. That, so yeah. I, the action shots, there was nothing, nothing that dragged, nothing that seems kind of far-fetched or fake. No, no one brought out knives or swords or surfboards or anything like that. So from that perspective, I thought they kind of grounded it yeah. really nicely. Yeah. I, I really enjoy the action. Yeah, same. Uh, the I mentioned that that scene you were talking about there, like it had this sort of John Wick feel to me, which I really enjoyed. The sort of the accuracy of the shots, and Paloma did it as well in the in the the birthday action sequence earlier in the film there's a there's a precision that they have like one shot headshots everything yeah it's it's pretty cool um yeah and there's you know it's there wasn't many action scenes but they're just punctuated at you know certain points to kind of break up more of the the slower but kind of character filled moments which i kind of enjoyed the film for uh gordon what's your thoughts on the some of the action you any favorites any moments that come to mind I felt there's. I thought there still felt like quite a lot of actions. Maybe maybe just because of the length of the film, um, because there's a lot of story there as well. You don't notice it so much. I'm not really sure. I I feel like the car chase wasn't the best. <laughs> um, so definitely not that. I felt not too much happened, but you know, could much happen when obviously you've got um the child in the back of the car. You know, it's, um, quite like that, like a family um sort of big car you've never seen that before it's usually sports cars or a tank or something <laughs> crazy so it's just a, a a normal like you know yeah people carry yeah people carry like, i don't know why it's I'm like the, a one yeah over advert really is yeah when you think about it it was filmed in scotland interestingly oh, was it? that or at least a good bit that sequence yeah um in the highlands and i think i would say my favorite action scene probably was going back to cuba though with the uh, bond bond and paloma and and the like the big sort of, it's like a Edwardian house or something, and they're because um, I really like the music there as well. Uh, it was a kind of Latin music. soundtrack almost to that fight, mm-hmm. which I thought worked really well. Yeah, it's contrasting as well, and um, again, Zimmer's. I, I've said for so long, they don't use the Bond theme enough, but Zimmer used it a lot in this film, and uh, it's great. I've been missing that so much. Yeah, and it's the light-hearted nature because the song contrast because there, there's bits. Um, if you listen to that in isolation, that that particular track, uh, the there's contrast. It is time changes and these, um, it gets to the eyes like sort of this, these Latin trumpets, and then then there's it's like more string based. You know, I I think um that like and it maybe felt like one of the more bonding sequences. So the car, yeah, the car chase didn't do too much for me. Towards the, I wasn't particularly keen on the action scenes and the. And the island and Saffin's island at the end, because it, it felt like the way Tomorrow Never Dies got the end, where Bond's just running around with a machine gun Rambo style. So 
and then people toss grenades at him and he just tosses them back and stuff. So I wasn't too fussed about that, really. The, the action scenes, um, I'm more keen on seeing good stunt work rather than mm-hmm. um, the actual action scene. And I think there was... There wasn't the CGI wasn't as bad in this film. Um, there's one particular bit I'll get on to maybe, but um, oh, a, lot, a lot of CGI. What kind of bit was it? We probably don't have much time. We'll have to wrap up soon. What section are you thinking of? Well, I didn't really like, and and I sensed I wasn't going to like it from the trailer. Bond and Nomi going down, and it's like a sort of glider, um, which just drops from the sky. I don't think it's even got an engine or anything. The the sort of plane, um. There's a bit there, it looks kind of fake. And also there's another bit when Obitrev gets dropped down this big lift shaft, um, when Spectre get into the lab, you know, not so good. But the, yeah, the CGI was, was fairly minimal compared to say, like, Skyfall. The likes of Skyfall, I thought it was too much of it and it, it looked, some of it looked pretty fake. But Yeah, okay. Fran, is there anything else you want to add to that? Um, I feel like I sort of covered all okay. of that. So, the before we finish up then and get to the rating, just wanted we've not really spoken a lot about the sort of smaller newer characters as well. Like uh Gor- what was his name? Orbachev? Orbachev, yeah. Orbachev, right. I, I, so, wanted yeah. To I remember him. Yeah, I, I feel commonly, like commonly to... commonly mixed up with the old pre- premier of the Soviet Union, Gorbachev. <laughs> Gorbachev, yeah. <laughs> so yeah. this was a character that I had a bit of an issue with, especially on my first watch, and it's not completely eroded that kind of feeling. Steve, I know you were not keen on this character. I'll let you take over for what you thought on your Yes. I'm glad we came to him because this is this is one of the downers for me. It's a shame. I think what they were trying to do is kind of ape Boris from Goldeneye, and there were kind of hints of that, but it just wasn't done well enough. Mm. Um, and it's a shame having one character that I wouldn't say brings the film down, but I mean that having that character played as a comedy character just didn't quite feel it right from the start. You could it was. I don't know if it was the accent. I don't know if that's that actor's genuine accent, but it felt very hackneyed. It was almost like a sort of 1970s impression of a Russian. Yeah. And it just, it didn't quite match the tone of the rest of the film. And the way he, I mean, I don't know if it was kind of deliberate because he almost kind of pissed off all the rest of the characters in the same way. I mean, the the point where... um her and Bond were kind of um, Nomi kind of went this guy's really annoying me and Bond kind of goes well why don't you do something about it or why don't you shut him up or whatever it is so he's obviously kind of annoying everyone else but he he was he just felt kind of annoying and it was the the lines that he was given the ooh magnets as he was falling down that lift shaft and you know he's punching the face and, oh my nose um, it was it was like something out of a carry on film or something like that it just it he jarred a little too much for me. Yeah. And I'm glad he kind of met the ends that he did quite kind of just being booted into the whatever liquid that was by Nomi was quite nice. <laughs> that I mean, threatening to effectively wipe out her race, um, quite right, the point that he got killed at. But he, as a character, the way he was played, the way he was scripted, it, it was like something taken out of, I don't know if it was meant to be a throwback to the older films to kind of, tie up that whole this film being uh, or referencing lots of other films from the franchise but it felt like he'd been lifted from one of Moore's films and kind of planted in this film and for me that just didn't work yeah yeah for me he the, the tone of this film didn't it didn't make sense that you had a character like him who said he's not Russian I've checked he's Swedish slash Danish um, really? so 
Um, you know, he's not really known to us as an actor. I don't. I, I've never. Um, uh, I've got David Denchik, but I, I didn't quite. Was he in? Um, was he in Chernobyl the series? I think he was. Yeah. Ah, okay, I have seen that as well. But yeah, um, for some reason, uh, I found his. It was distracting that slightly over the top, you know, speaking in a kind of kind of almost not pidgin English, but that kind of like you know, obviously he's not. But it, it just came across like he was played for laughs, but his part was quite a dark character, and also it didn't fit with anyone else in the film. Like it just didn't fit the tone of this film. Goldeneye is quite a light film that obviously has murder and things like that it's but it's still a, a bit much lighter than this the, the craig era just doesn't it doesn't suit this film at all when you've got a character like that he's playing it very over the top and it's just like calm down mate like just can we do, can we do another can we try another take where you just well i, I thought it was chekhov star trek for a bit ah, so yeah it's a bit well, like that, yeah um i only say this obviously having listened to other podcasts it Quite a lot of Bond fans have said he's like Borat at times when you think about some of the lines. Ah, Magnet! And what's the thing? He says it's some line about, I like animals. Uh-huh. It's, yes, like said, yeah. it's, it's Borat, actually, you're right. That is it. It's, that's it, exactly. Yes. I completely feel that. And also, I, I want to point out, it was one of you guys coming out of the cinema actually said he he's basically the Jar Jar of this Bond film. Uh, I think I might have said I that. <laughs> yeah. yeah, I think it might have been used to that. I, I, and I completely agree. I think he's a terrible character, quite frankly. And yeah. I just, um, just his exposition as well, like the thing about Magnus and the bit, all of, only Spectre are dying. I, we don't, we don't need, quite need that. Yeah, we find that, kind of we kind of find that out. I hated so, that like, line. That is so like, we have it's an admission to the, the, the by the filmmakers that we haven't made this plot very clear. So we're gonna have a character just tell you it because you would never say that normally. Ah, only spec. That's an internal thought. You wouldn't say that. That's not something he has to say. But of course, the plot is so complicated. They have to have him actually tell us. Oh, he's ch- he's done something. He's changed the 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 die whatever it is the sequence so that it's now just going to target the Spectre agents. Right? Okay, now I'm on board. But that to me is a failure on the plot and also a failure in exposition. That the fact they had that character say that. Ah, yep, not a fan of him at all. And I would say, um, show sure don't tell, show sure don't tell. Exactly. Yeah, you you yes. sometimes need a like a bit of that in Bond, but that you know that was just too much. Um, I don't know what you guys think of the. You kind of touched them earlier, the, the henchman. Um, yeah. I think his name's Primo was not actually mentioned. He felt to me like it was only after the second or third viewing I really started to realise how much relevance he had. But he's kind of like more, he looks more like the generic foot soldier. He maybe didn't have, I'm not saying he has to have a bowler hat or metal teeth, but I think he maybe needs um, some better dialogue, maybe more of a kind of dual type thing with Bond Earl on. The, I mean, his fight with him then ends a bit. Um, a bit kind of chaotic and over very quickly. Um, what do you think of him? We... He felt a bit like the henchman from License to Kill. Um, what was his name? Dario. I no, think, uh, I would say the, way, in the way not as impactful as Dario. Dario had yeah, charisma. Yeah. Dario, yeah, Dario less, had dialogue. Yeah, less I mean, less impact, but, barely um, had any dialogue. Yeah. Yeah, it's just it's, it, like I said, he's more like uh, just like this sort of soldier running around with a, a gun, a, like a big. <laughs> A massive rifle. Um, he, he, I don't see. Yeah. I, th- I think we're as we were talking about the female characters been really well written. Not so much the the male ones. I mean, um, and I think 
I would say that I really didn't like Belmarshing the Bowfield, and obviously I hated the way he died. I didn't have so much of a problem with actually the dialogue from um, Christoph Waltz, um, but yeah, maybe more of a problem with like Craig's dialogue and that. I don't like that either. I don't know what it is about it, but it feels, again, like we're touching on the exposition. It's them trying to explain some stuff, but make it in dialogue, and it's trying to come across natural, but it doesn't It doesn't work for me. Uh, it's the way, um, I think they they wanted to, and this is where I think there is a lot of, there was maybe too many writers over a long period of time, and it did, it did feel a bit contrived to me at times throughout the film. Um, I think they wanted to get in, in the You Only Live Twice novel, there was a line Bond trying to kill Bofeld, I think, and he's like, die, Bofeld, die. The, but the way, just the, the way that's executed in, in this, I really didn't like. It just, that didn't feel like Bond to me, didn't seem like the sort of thing he would do. I, I think the worst bit of acting from Daniel Craig in the film was the bit when he started sort of looking at the ground and moving towards Bofeld. And I just, I really didn't buy that. Mm. I, I reckon he was, um, he took his uh, license to kill too seriously there. He just was like literally like he just forgot himself completely. It's like I just didn't even have a license to kill at that point. It was just very, very strange. I mean it's like it's like it was never personal for Bond, was it? It should have been though. I mean like that didn't it should have been it should have been like the way the Young Live Twice novel was or the way Dimes Are Forever was supposed to be, where it's like Bond fuck everything else. I'm after Blofeld, I don't care what you see, I'm going Rogue here, do you know what I mean? Um, and I just didn't uh-huh. really get that. Yeah, everything should have come down to Blofeld, really. Christoph Waltz in that scene. I mean, I get the character probably is a bit disenfranchised, but he seemed a bit um, just like, yeah, what do you want? Yeah, huh? <laughs> like, um, I mean, as I think I mentioned, I just don't like the kind of unceremonial way that they they bumped him off. Yeah, and that could have been done a bit better. Um, yeah, and I mean the the minor characters. As a, I, I keep using this word depth, the way that they've given uh, even the sort of most minor of characters decent sort of chunk of backstory is. I mean, although I suppose saying that, I don't know if um, Obuchev had anything in the way of backstory. Knew that he was a scientist, but beyond that, we don't really know anything about his. He does, uh, yeah, he does. Where he stands, what his motivations are—is he just kind of a scientist for hire, almost? Because he 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 seemed to sort of switch sides, yeah, almost at the drop of a hat. And it was just kind of whoever—it um, just seemed like almost whoever he was, whoever was paying him to do whatever. Uh, but for the most part, in terms of minor characters, everyone did seem to have a little bit more depth. There wasn't anyone completely faceless who kind of came in and just got killed or got kind of. Um, kind of came in and then left again without us really knowing much about why they were there, what they were doing and where they'd come from. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So in that respect, um I think I think that's that's credit to the scripting. And is and if, as you said earlier, that's down to Phoebe Waller Bridge, then I mean all the better for it. Just taking characters and going, why don't we just add this this one line or this one or two words that just tells you a sort of multitude more about who this person is because it, it does add to the film being able to kind of it, it gives you a level of either empathy or whatever the opposite of empathy is kind of hatred I suppose towards a character you know whether you're supposed to like someone or not because you actually almost feel is the it, emotion rather than sort of being told okay I'm being told I'm not supposed to like this person or I am supposed to like this person yeah, like antipathy is that what it is but um, yeah that's it yeah it's like 
for me, if, if I'm saying Phoebe Waller-Bridge all the time, that is what she was brought on for, and probably was her. You, we don't really know which writer did each for each character of each scene. You know, yeah. it could have been a collaboration process, and she's touched this the script up and added little moments, and but then they've added bits. Fucking Ira herself probably has done some of that stuff, and Purvis and Wade. So it's hard to tell, but certainly you get the sense of her writing uh, in this film, which is one of the things I really loved about it. Um, before we finish up, Logan Ash, very quickly on him. Is there anything really we've got anything on him? Um, obviously, he comes across like a sleazy kind of idiot character. He's a, you know, there's, there's a bit more going on with him it eventually reveals, but what's our thoughts on him? Yeah, he was a well-played smarmy bastard. Um, I, I quite liked um, Bond's um, Where Did You Get a Book of Mormon from? That yeah. was quite a nice... Uh, yeah. Yeah. He... I quite liked the way that went, because he did... It kind of seems... You felt there was something up with him. The way that he was very enthusiastic and trying stuff. to keep yeah. everyone on topic. As you, you know, the ad lighter and uh, Bond's in the bar and um, Ash kind of going, yeah, yeah but this is the this is the guy we're after. What about him? What are you gonna? How are you gonna help us do this? This is the mission that we got. Um, but yeah, the sort of showing his true colours when they were on the, the fishing boat or whatever. Um, I thought was quite. He was he was he was a well played mm-hmm. smarmy bastard. They cast him quite nicely, clean shaven. Complete opposite to, to yeah. Bond and Felix. Yeah. Um. And was that that just sort of on him? That scene where the boat blows up and the plane flies off was that meant to be like the end of the pre-title sequence of Goldeneye? Because that's kind of what it looked like. I wasn't sure if that Possibly was a throwback. There's there's so many subtle nods and there's so many bigger ones. Which yeah. Because the, there was an explosion and the plane flies out of the explosion and I thought the way it's done. Ah uh, yeah. Because that little seaplane as well yeah. Uh, yeah, exactly. Maybe I, I don't know. Maybe it was a, a subtle throwback. Hey, a, a few points and a star's just been added for that uh, reason. <laughs> <laughs> uh, okay, I think there's not much more to to go over. Gordon, is there any closing points you want to add before we do our ratings? Well, I will mention briefly on the rating, but there's a big elephant in the room that we haven't really touched on. Oh, let's let's talk about it. Well, well, the ratings will just be a summary. Oh, Jesus, right. (laughs) Yeah, uh, yeah, we'll talk about that, I think, definitely. Let's not talk about that in the ratings. Let's get the the talk. Jesus, I'm I'm really losing it. Yeah, because I I was going to bring it up when Fran was talking and you mentioned it. I thought we need to talk about that. I completely forgot about it. Uh yes, okay. The ending. This film has done something that no other Bond film has done. It has killed James Bond. I hope you've uh, watched the film, by the way, if you're listening to this. <laughs> and we didn't leave the spoilers late, yeah. didn't we? <laughs> I'm sure we've mentioned it's a spoiler cast at some point, but uh, yeah, Bond kicks the bucket in this film, and quite dramatically so as well. This isn't a sort of um, casual. Arimov getting shot and then he's gone within a second of footage. It's like uh, this is it. The 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 missiles are are coming towards him. He's got nine minutes, and yeah, it's quite an explosive end. Bit of a big build up as well. Uh, what's our thoughts on this, Gordon? We'll come to you on this one first. Yeah, um, and it's something I thought might happen. Um, the way it was done, I think could have been done a lot better. I don't want to see if James Bond's ever going to die. I want it to be a bit more heroic than just standing around a CGI explosion. I just don't... Um, I was taken aback when I first saw it, but like I said, I, I, I thought he might, he might die in some way. I, I feel... Um, I just feel James Bond shouldn't really die. I know why they did it. Like, with Daniel Daniel Craig's tenure, it's always been its own thing. 
Um, I think they made it clear beforehand that you know it would be a reboot after him. So I kind of get it, and I really, I, I mean, it really gets me emotionally the the lead up to. It. I mean, that's actually so brilliantly done. I have no problems with that when I say I don't like the ending so much, like him climbing up the ladder. Zimmer's score is out of this world at that point. Mm-hmm. The strings he's using is getting higher pitched, and then seeing the reactions after. Um, is that part is really well done? Um, it, you, you're just so sucked in the movie at that point. But I just, I still feel one of the one of the cornerstones of the Bond character for me is James Bond doesn't die. James Bond finds a way. I, even part of me, this might be a bit far fetched. Thinks even with a, a world without Matilda and without Madeline, maybe you know James Bond is a sort of guy that just gets on with things. You know, he maybe he would do that. I can see why they went down the avenue they did. Um, I suppose that's the whole point of the film, isn't it? That's changed them. I think if it was an another film and it was any other character, he would have found a way. But in this film, he has given up because of the journey he's been on with with this film. I suppose maybe that's the the point. Maybe I don't know. What? Yeah, that's that's where I think you know it, it, it because there's enough other good stuff in the film. It's not it's not enough to say it's a terrible film for me or anything like that. I just feel James Bond always finds a way James Bond is, is is the guy who survives and that's why it says James Bond will return at the, the end of each film and so it's it's taking a big factor of a way of the Bond that we all know I quit um, uh, if I'm honest I like it um, sorry Gordon I'll cut you off I'll cut you off there. no it's okay I've, yeah I've pretty much summarised it I'll, ne- I'll never be won over by that uh, no matter what um I'll just I'll never be won won over by that, and you're you know the writers are painting themselves into a corner, and I just feel like I'm not sure if it was necessary to have the combination of Whiter gets killed, Blofeld gets killed, Bond gets killed all in the one film. I you see. Know? They could have they could have perhaps stretched that out a little bit. Yeah, I can see how they. I, I don't know if they all necessarily needed to die. I mean. As I, as I think we mentioned, Blofeld didn't necessarily had to because the continuation of Spectre probably should have gone on lighter. Dying kind of just ramps up the emotive nature of his um, of Bond's um, Bond's intentions for the film. He had another reason to want to get to the bottom of this. So I, I kind of see, yeah, that having everyone kind of dying one go, I can see how that seems almost a bit like they've, they're throwing everything at this film. And I just I suppose it's a question yeah. of to to what detriment that is. Mm-hmm. Yeah, because to me it's also a case. It feels like the writers are trying too hard to make a statement. Let's go where nobody's gone before, because everyone wants to put their own stamp on things, and quite rightly. But I feel they're trying, especially by killing those three characters, they're trying too hard to be different. And for me, that doesn't quite work. So I. I get that, and we'll see, time will tell if this is something that might bite them. People don't take it as seriously or or something, or people aren't ready for the, I, I don't know, a world where Bond can die. I don't I don't know, I don't see how it could be. I like it, It's they've earned it, they've 25 years, nearly six decades, they're allowed to have, for me, they've earned it on this film, especially, but it's not, it had to be in a film that earned it within the film and also it had it just had to be a smash hit of a film. It had to make sense. It had to have many things ticked off for for me to accept it. And they did it. And that's why I like it because I think normally I wouldn't. Um I, I don't think there would, it, there was so much hurdles for me to accept them killing off this character that them nailing all of the points 
and mostly how they did it. I initially, you mentioned how you loved the swelling up of the music and he's climbing up the stairs. It's very dramatic. We already know at this point he is, you know, not able to really have a normal life anymore with Madeline and, and Matilda because he's got he's been poisoned. So we already know his life is now pretty much forever ruined. Um, but you still there's an essence of as an audience member, are we really watching this character die? Is this is this actually? It? And I kind of enjoyed that, like kind of like back and forth in my head of. They're they're gonna do it, aren't they? They're gonna are they gonna do it? No, they're not gonna. They're, no, they're gonna do it. There's no one coming in to save him this time. There's always been like a thing in the films where he's about to get in. One of the women has a gun, or somebody knocks over the guy, and he just gets saved in the nick of time. And this time, there's no way out. They've not they've not got any way to write it, to save him. And I like that back and forth in my head. Um, but the actual way they've done it initially when I first watched it, I thought it was a bit too big. Like, well, it's killing James Bond, so I get it, and I think I'll, I'll like it in the end. But I might have had a bit more enjoyment if it was silent, if the music had cut out, and it's yep. him just climbing the steps, and it's the ambience of the moment. I think it might have hit me a bit more. Um, yeah. It's yeah. a bit more... It was too dramatic and too cinematic, as, which is weird because it's a film, cinema. But there was something about that that made it almost a bit, not cliche, that's not the right word, but something a bit expected, a bit, yeah, yeah, okay, character, big moment. But if you cut the music out, it adds more, you know, to it. And yeah. I think that's maybe what I would have wanted from it. Believe it or not, actually, this is the final point I'll make on it, Steve. If you've ever watched Get Carter with Michael Caine, the way he's... Big spoiler, I think I'm gonna have to say it. Oh god. <laughs> the way the way he, he's eliminated at the right. very end, it's completely silent and it's a it's a gunshot. Um probably like his shot in the head or in the chest or something like that. James Bond was a gunman. We have the gun bar with all that imagery of double seven, I think he should, probably should have been shot in all honesty. And a bit you you should watch Get Carter, which I've just totally spoiled for you. And um the, <laughs> the, the ending of that. <laughs> Yeah, I'm only kidding. I mean, my memory's terrible. I will forget these things, so it's okay. Um, But thanks for ruining that film, Gordon. Uh, And for any audience member as well who hasn't seen it. (laughs) Uh, Right, uh, Steve, any final thoughts on that before we get to the rating this time? Yeah, I'm just kind of on reflection, sort of just realising what that ending did to me. Because, I mean, I found it absolutely spectacular. What they did was effectively ramped up the emotion just that last 10 minutes. Mm-hmm. The combination of the scripting and the cinematography and the score and the shot changes yep. and the way it built. Cause, I mean, it starts, it starts with that, um, that conversation between Bond and Safin. Mm-hmm. Um, and I mean, just before Safin's shot, that little monologue he has is almost Shakespearean, the way he's kind of going, two heroes in a tragedy of their own making. That whole speech yeah, is like it was lifted out of a Shakespeare film. Yeah. But, and it kind of, it starts from there. And what gets me is that the emotion of the, that, the way it ramps up, the way he, he, that Bond has that slow realization that his life, you can, you can almost feel his thought process of, right, okay, I've been poisoned. I can't go near the woman and child I love anymore. Therefore, I'm going to have to end my own life. And what you're watching is Bond doing that over the course of 10 minutes and then communicating that to, um, uh, to Madeline. And you, you realize that, you know, Q goes through that realization, then Madeline, then Nomi, et cetera. But what that 
in Tyranny does is masks the f- sort of massive holes in the plot. Because you have to kind of go back and think, right, why is it? You have to really, really concentrate, I think, to work out why it is that Bond has been poisoned and can't go near Madeline and Matilde's anymore. I agree, I agree on this. And the whole kind of DNA thing, you have to kind of really sit and wrap your head around that. And they've kind of plastered over the fact that you have to sit and work that out by giving you 10 minutes of effectively sensory overloads. Because mm-hmm. they, they ramp up, you've got that incredible yeah. speech from Rami Malik just before he's shot, then the music ramps up, then Bond climbing that ladder and very slowly kind of realizing what he's going to have to do and then telling um, Madeline over the kind of earpiece and then you, you see the rockets on the way and then how it cuts from Bond to the explosion to Madeline to Nomi to Q to M to uh, Money Penny um, and it's it's just this absolute overload of oh my god an emotion yeah yeah which I mean it's as a piece of filmmaking as I, I came off the back of it going that was absolutely spectacular but when you actually sit down and analyze it you think hang on a sec by doing that what they've done is plastered over the sort of large plot holes and the confusion in the sort of motivation that ran throughout the film. Yeah. Which I'm now kind of thinking to myself, have they almost sort of hypnotized it? Have they kind of duped me slightly by doing that? Because I, I can't, I still can't come away feeling anything negative about it because I absolutely loved that 10 minutes. I was, it was just absolutely glorious filmmaking. Yeah. And then going from that to that little bunch of characters in a room gathered around a whiskey kind of remembering Bond and then going right back to work. Yeah. It was it was just so they kind of bang you right out of it. Yeah. So it was it was spectacular. But I'm now thinking to myself, are they using that to try and hide the fact that the plot didn't make any sense? Oh definitely. And you're I completely with you on that. Um the the feeling of the scene overwrites any of the, the vagueness of the plot and its little inconsistencies and its weirdness and, and all the little things that you're kinda like otherwise you would be quite and if it had failed in the in the strength of the, the performance and the actual capturing of the moment, you that stuff would have came right to the forefront. Um it wasn't only my second viewing that I actually understood it. I had to speak to my, my mate after it one of the times, even on my second viewing. I was like, can you explain what happened? How did we know this and that? And why did that happen? You know, I, I'm slow sometimes on the little details in these things. And uh, I, it was one of those things where it didn't make a lot of sense to me at first. And I think there's an issue with the film. It's not just me then that that's not clearly communicated. And, and it's just a bit confusing. Um, but you're right. The feeling is well done and they, 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 they are able to paste over it and, and kind of convince you and you you don't, you're not questioning that stuff. You're actually more thinking about the moment of the, of the scene, which is, is good. Uh, depending on your, on your like thoughts on the, the idea of killing Bond alone, that can be the issue, which I think Gordon has alluded to that you're, yeah. that, uh, that the concept of that alone is maybe is an issue, but how they've done it is, is quite well done. Yeah. Steve and yes, yeah, Steve was correct in saying um obviously the, the emotion. I mean, is that maybe Leah Sarou's best scene in that film? Just the her her crying talking to Bond over the phone, talking about Matilda. The whole thing as well. But and Bond's like highly emotional when he's like he says something about Matilda like 
she's the most beautiful thing because she came from you or something like that. Really kind of guess. It's, it's all, he sounds a bit Forrest Gump there, actually. I don't know mm-hmm. if you remember um, talking about Little Forrest. He's like, he's the most beautiful thing I've ever seen or something like I've that. I've seen it a long <laughs> time. Was, it distracted me from it slightly. but She's um, fantastic. Like, You're right. She is. She sells that and steals Well, I'm, I'm glad I came back for that moment there to hear... Um, the most beautiful thing ever. I was like, "What is going on here?" Yeah. <laughs> I literally just uh, appeared just, at that moment. It was the first <laughs> thing I, I thought. Of. But and again, Steve, like you said, Ben Wisher. I liked how cute, yeah, cute tears in his eyes as well. Like, I just uh, that was like his finest hour, man. We even had Bond crying before, obviously, um, which was quite novel. We've only seen it in the film that is referenced heavily in this in this film. Uh, you know, on Her Majesty's Secret Service. Um, which is again quite a departure from the usual Bond traits, isn't it? We don't usually see that kind of emotion from him, which I quite liked. Um, and the final sort of conversation with uh, Madeline when he's explaining essentially what's going to happen. Okay, this uh, has been an epic one, and it's only fitting for this film, I suppose. But we have uh, the fact that my food has arrived and we'll be getting cold. We'll come to the ratings. Um, Gordon, let's hear your rating for this film. Well, I'm going to give it a four, straight down the line four, most, mostly for feel alone, because I mentioned before, it's got this feel that I just love that's been missing from the Craig films, and maybe make Spectre, for example, seem a bit kind of blander as a predecessor. Um, and a lot of that's in Hans Zimmer's music, because it's the best um, score for a long time. Um, he's, he brings back the, the flair of John Barry many times, which you know, it was such a big thing to me, films of the past. Um and obviously the camera angles and stuff, it was that first viewing scene Bond and Madeline um driving and I thought it was a, a bold move using, you know, we have all the time in the world, but I'm okay with that. You know, it works for this film. Um and great acting again from Bond Bond and Leah I think as well. Um I like the um female performances. Um yeah, there's there's a bit of fun. It gets. I don't mind Bond films being different if they're done the right way. Um, you know, I I had to spend a while after this film just kind of soaking up and thinking about it in the the following days, and um, it's just for feel alone. You know, it's one that I have to have in my collection. Um, and that I mean, like I said, there is things that let it down. I just don't feel it's enough though, really. Um, you know, I I've I've said enough about. It. Obviously, I don't quite agree with you know the way. Um, Bond dies. Um, the whole um, not seeing Aubrey. The, the, I just get the feeling that the writing does feel contrived at times. I think it did suffer from the long, the longitude of just the the making of the film. Uh, different writers were involved. That it does sometimes feel contrived, similar to Spectre. Also, one big thing um, at the end. I mean, I, I mentioned about Bond dying, but sometimes I think why. Why did um, the base have to be destroyed that second? I mean, I didn't really, in the likes of Thunderball and Tomorrow Never Died, you get that sense of imminent World War III being kind of, but I'm not, I'm not really buying those stakes. There's a line Bond has that's in the trailer about, um, he says, if we don't do something, um, there'll be nothing left to save. And I, that's not really resonating with me somehow. I just feel like Bond, could have, they could have at least had like time to get Bond off the island. Why did, it have to be destroyed right that second. So that's also what gets me when Bond been destroyed with the missile. It's like he didn't have to, you know. I'm not quite getting the stakes. I don't really understand Safin's motivations. Yeah. So that's a shame that um because 
like I said, I, I just I love the way this film feels. And um, does it really tie up Daniel Craig's tenure properly? Not kind of. Um, it was maybe maybe this was his sort of bruising bond. This was the way ultimately he was going to end up, but um, it's not quite tying up like avenging Vesper. It's not tying up the whole Spectre thing. It's a different villain, so I'm not so sure. But like I said, it's just the feel of this film just is the overriding emotion. Okay, four stars for Gordon Steve. So I came up with my rating effectively straight off the back of the film. I finished watching it and immediately went, right, that's a four and a half for me. After that, and I still maintain that absolutely incredible ten minutes of um, emotion that they hit you with at the end. Because for me at that point, the only drawback was Obrachev. That kind of, he really distracted me from the rest of the film. So my thinking was... Beyond that, it's almost perfect. It's a four and a half. Upon further reflection, I think I am dropping it down to a four. And it is because of the, I think, unnecessarily overcomplicated plot involving the Heracles technology. And as Gordon pointed out, I'm just not, I'm still not entirely clear on Safin's um, intentions, what his motivations are. I know he wants the technology to kill people, but... I still don't think it's entirely clear as to why. So for that reason, I think it's a four. Beyond that, it is, it's definitely one of my absolute favorite Bond films. It's, it is almost perfect as a Bond film. And I love the fact that the modernization has done absolutely nothing to its detriment. In fact, you could probably say that in parts it's improved it. It's proof that the old Bond tropes aren't necessary for its survival. You can take out Bond sleeping with women who then get killed. There was none of that. It didn't affect the film whatsoever. He slept with one woman. It's the woman it's, he's been in a long-term relation with previous relationship with previously. He didn't immediately um, sleep with the sort of main assassin. There was no casual racism. There was no misogyny. There was no woman being beaten up or anything like that unnecessarily. And it didn't. It wasn't to the film's detriment. And that kind of proves, I think, a lot of the doubters who were saying, "Oh no, no, you can't." take all these because there was a lot of chat obviously before this film came out they were talking about um oh a woman being bonds phoebe waller bridge coming in everything i think there was fears that it was going to be completely changed and softened but it didn't so it's um the the modernization element i think vastly improved it and long may that continue and beyond that the storyline was apart from the obvious plot holes was relatively easy to to sort of um, it wasn't actually easy to fall scrap that the way it looks <laughs> yeah. I've, I've looked at my notes and going hang on a sec I wrote that immediately after watching that end scene I don't entirely agree with myself now so I'm removing that I'll, but I'll cut, I'll cut it out. looked fantastic the cinematography was great a lot of the scripting was great and as I've previously mentioned the depth that the characters have been given almost every minor character you had something that told you where they came from and what they were trying to do and I, I absolutely love that so in summary absolutely beyond the fact that the plot was overcomplicated and the main villain's motivations weren't entirely clear as a film i loved it i felt the emotion i enjoyed it and so yeah four stars yeah uh fair enough four stars from steve uh fran and i am going to give this five out of five wow okay and you know i think any any complaints we've got about it aren't enough for me to take it off total. Do you know what I mean? Like, they're, it's just a, a, you know, it's a quality piece of work. 
you know what I mean? And it addresses a lot of the different issues we've always talked about as well. I mean, it really is something. Uh, what a send off mm-hmm. for Daniel yeah. Craig, you know, and James Bond himself. For crying out loud, James Bond has died. Got to give it five stars. I mean, my God. I mean, they, and, and they made it so that it didn't feel. I was worried about this. I'm not going to lie. I quietly worried about this film all the way up to seeing it. And now I'm not worried anymore. <laughs> and that, you know, five stars for progress, five stars for quality, five stars for the actors, most of them that won't, all of them bar one, maybe, like, you know, one character that I agreed with that. Yeah. Um, yeah. Uh, complaints were trivial from, from me. Yeah. Fair enough, man. Fair enough. Uh, okay, cool. And yeah, I am also in the four star camp. This film, um, Neil's all the things we've discussed, characterization mostly for the majority of the characters, and obviously especially on the female side of things, uh, are really interesting and really fun characters. And just having little lines to explain things adds so much depth. Cinematography is always one of my things that I love, and this film is is no exception. Uh, this is you know a brilliant film. The color palette and also just some of the actual. The, the shots with the action scenes were great. I you know I had a lot of fun with that. Hans Zimmer's score and Billy Eilish's theme song both brilliant and used well in conjunction with each other. Uh, and I liked the the callbacks to obviously on Her Majesty's Secret Service as well. And the acting performances, yep, loved Craig. And I think it's a fantastic final film. Has has the best Bond bow out by far. Um, obviously you can't really count License to Kill as Dalton's bow out because it wasn't planned to be that way Um, so if you're not counting that then this is the the best final Bond film for any of the Bond actors and I'm happy for him, I'm really happy for him the anticipation for this film is insane, there was so much riding against it, you mentioned it in your rating Steve that this film could easily you know, with the you know the the delayed shoots and also the the directors changing hands as well, and the writing that uh, you know there was arguments that it could be overly feminized with Phoebe Waller Bridge coming in, and then also this other new character, Lashana Lynch was playing, and all this kind of rumors of him having a kid in it, and other, there was a lot of talk about it previously before MD had even seen the film, and can I go negative on that? And obviously, I feel like it's shut all of that down. The film justified all of its kind of you know changes and things like that and uh, all for the better but it's not perfect and yep Gorbachev uh, chef or the, the russian scientist character is definitely the standout weakest point for me doesn't doesn't really make much sense and the third act as you i will agree with you mostly on that third act gordon um you're right the the, the third act doesn't tie up very well uh, it doesn't set the sense of urgency. I'd never thought of that. Actually, you're completely right. I'm with you on that. That um, they maybe Bond could have just escaped. We, 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 it's again ties into Safin and what he's doing. The vagueness of his plan and the vagueness of his motivations. It doesn't convince you that Bond needed to sort this straight away and and launch those missiles. Maybe we could have went back and organized a sort of new uh, strike or something. Maybe when he was safe, but. Uh, Safin alone as well. That's that is you know interesting character, but there was definitely uh, not the, the, the you know the, the motivations and the plot was too silly, too complicated. So yeah, it's not perfect, but I really enjoyed it, and it's up there in my probably top five. Make just might uh, make it into top five or six films for me of the Bond franchise. So that I'm really pleased with. 
and I'm really excited now for where do they go now? Like this, obviously the there's no confirmation of who it is, but I'm hoping for Richard Madden. Richard Madden. Um, yeah, but four uh, four stars for me. So it's four 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 and a five from Fran. So this has done well. Craig has bowed out uh, the franchise. Uh, he can be he can be pleased with that the uh, Capiche Bondaf podcasts are given a, a decent rating. He can be chuffed with that. Very proud of himself. And the rest of the Bond filmmakers. Carrie Fukunaga, we've not really mentioned him very much. I think he's done fantastic. I would love to see if he stays on as a Bond director and writer. So yeah, that concludes the Bond Daft project. We have finished all of the films. The ranking films are nearly finished editing and will be up at some point. But uh, I've said that before and it's been a year later. So uh, my... I, you know, you can't really take me seriously anymore, I think. <laughs> I'll just need to get it done. But, um, yeah, we'll need to get a new project going. But maybe we'll do another Bond app. We'll find an excuse, a, a flimsy excuse, to come back and actually do one in person and play some GoldenEye and Perfect Dark to, to finish the project uh, yes. in, in person. But um, for now, this is the... Uh, and obviously, when the next Bond film comes out, hey, we'll probably find the time to do one then when we're in our 40s. But... Um, yeah it's it's for now this is the end of the project and what a way to bow out i think this is a a good one to end on and i'm glad it's been it's been a journey and uh yeah that's us us signing off mission accomplished guys (laughs) i don't know we're officially signing off but yeah um, (laughs) don't know when there'll be another film or maybe maybe we can re-review them all once they all come out in 4k blu-ray i don't know just do every every single one again and just re-review yeah Has our opinion of Diamonds Are Forever changed? I think it's going to be... We could just do a very short podcast and say, no. No, <laughs> <still> shit. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Right, guys, I'm going to finish off and I'm also going to get my food. So thank you for joining me for this epic podcast. We're going to be approaching three hours, which is... Yeah, yeah, that makes sense for this wow. film. There's a lot to unpack in this one, and I think we've covered most of it. If there's anything else... I'll add it in post, but uh, I can't think of much. I think we really have covered every minute of this film. So, Fran, thank you for joining me. You're welcome. And Gordon, thanks for having me. <laughs> Gordon, closing thoughts. Well, thank you. Um, it's been quite a journey, and um, we've um, we have covered Bond to within an inch of its life, and. Yep. Uh, I've enjoyed it. Um, it doesn't matter. Um, I've seen a lot of the films. Um, yeah, I'll certainly, I'll even if there's never another Bond film made, you know, I'll still be content to watch the films for a long time to come. And No Time to Die is one, you know, it's got a lot of rewatching value, and it will be interesting to see what happens next. Yeah, certainly will. Yeah, definitely agree, Steve. Good to thanks for joining us in this one. It's been epic. Two and a half years ago, I had sort of seen one or two Bond films and knew a little bit about it and I like to think I'm now an honorary aficionado yeah. I've got you guys to thank for that because I wouldn't <laughs> have watched all these films otherwise but I've now watched all the Bond films which for me as a sort of non-film aficionado is insane so yeah it's been incredible I know That's, you're, you've came on the biggest journey actually I think because we don't uh, get exposure to the franchise in quite a fair bit but you were pretty much a novice which was kind of cool i i have gone on a craig-esque arc yeah have you ever have you next to have you had a pub quiz or anything like that when you've got to use your new bond knowledge would you be quite would you be able to point out a director or, or name a, a year of a 
uh, one of the films or anything like that, do you think? I still think some of the specifics yeah. I'm probably not so sure on. And I'd, I'd like to think that I could, though. I'd like to think I'm, one day I'll watch an episode of Mastermind or something like that, yeah. and someone will go on and do Bond. Like, oh, I, I actually know a question. I know that one. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. yeah, I feel a lot more confident now than I did. Yeah, name the the five films that Ken Adams worked on. Seven film? No, I can't. I'm not going to do that because um, I don't know myself. <laughs> but uh, yep, okay, guys, this has been awesome. I'm going to finish this and hopefully get the next uh, ranking episode up for you to listen to. And um, yeah, we will at some point reconvene and discuss the next project, whatever we decide to do. Hopefully, uh, in the new year. And uh, with that, I will say goodbye. And the James, oh, I was going to say the Bondaf podcast will return. Will Definitely not return. Won't return. Yeah, the Bondaf podcast will not return, but the Capiche podcast will. And whatever we decide to do, thanks for joining us. And take care. Bye bye. Bye bye. Bye bye. Bye. All the credits. <laughs> 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 <laughs>